to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Ignite. This track, Turn 21, is the updated version of one of their old classics, this time sung by Eli Santana, the new face and voice behind Ignite. And we're going to get into all that in the episode. Frankly, Ignite has always been one of my favorite hardcore bands. From the first time I heard them to the first time I seen them. One of my favorite bands of book. One of my wish list. One day we'll get them to play this hardcore type bands. I'm so happy to hear that they're back. Eli fucking kills it. I'm so glad that these guys are pushing forward. Make sure to check that out. Now, going into this episode, we had to continue on the West Coast stuff. I know we had a couple Philly local stuff. It was easier at the time, but... There's still some people on the West Coast that I got to get to. There's so much history, cool shit, friends of mine that I love talking to, and stories that I think are worth listening to. So I was able, after the Keystone Jam episode, to kind of wrangle this one in. Kind of excited to hear uh, your opinion of the Keystone Jam episode. I've gotten a lot of good feedback. I don't think we're going to go and do another one where we go through a lot of songs anytime soon. But I'm glad that this kind of format didn't annoy anybody. Now, we got a lot going on at Philly Hardcore Shows. So anyone who's listening to this podcast knows before we get into the guests and all the other stuff, we always ramble off on what shows we got because, hey, this is what the fuck we do. We're prom- I'm a promoter, you know? So starting off, the newest show that Bob just announced is absolutely fucking unreal. March 26th. At the First Unitarian Church, From Within Records Showcase. That's right. Our boy Carter, he's putting on a banger here in Philadelphia. Philly Hardcore Shows is going to give him a hand and welcome all these From Within Records bands. Eco Strike, the final show. Absolutely crazy to think of them playing their last show. Um, Lennon moved up to Philadelphia the week of the pandemic. And has been slowly immersing himself as a Philadelphia hardcore person. And um, yeah, Eco Strike is uh, breaking up. This is the last show. This is also Payback's It Is What It Is record release. Also on the bill, Magnitude, Shackled, Simulacra, Worn, Seat of Pain, Burning Strong, representing Florida, Best Car, Final Right. You know, once again, here we go with Bob Wilson out here just big dicking it off the tracks. It's a 2 p.m. matinee, $25. You're not going to want to fucking miss this. Tickets are already on sale. Go to phillyhcshows.com. We've got the link in the flyer up, okay? Obviously, we got a bunch of shows this week, so I'm going to go through them pretty fucking quickly. If you are in the Philadelphia area and you would like to still go to Keystone Jam and you're listening to this on Friday, we still have tickets at the door. You can get them online until Saturday. Make sure you check out the Keystone Holiday Hardcore Jam. Eat Town Concrete, Wisdom and Chains, All Out War, Death Threat, Buried Alive, Rude Awakening, Cruel Hands, Shadow Realm, Strength for Reason, Buried Dreams, MH Chaos, Shackle, Face Wreck, Age of Apocalypse, Bushido Code, Carry by Six, Raw Life, Off the Tracks, D Block, Street Struck, and Hesitate. That's a fucking show. It's a holiday jam. Make sure you go out, see your friends. Especially with the holidays, I say it every week. You're probably getting tired of me saying that. Not everybody's got families. Not everybody has somewhere to go, but you got somewhere to go. You got a family that you want to see. We're going to be here. Great show. 
lot of cool shit going on. Make sure that you check out what the girls in Boston have been up to. They are taking donations for coats, gloves, hats, winter socks, hand warmers, underwear, tents, tarps, sleeping bags, backpack, rain gear, toiletries. They will be donating and packing everything. Absolutely incredible work from these females. The girl gang absolutely always doing great stuff. Continuing on the Philly Hardcore shows going forward next week, Tuesday and Wednesday. First show is at Underground Arts. It is Acacia Strain, Kubakan, Euro Knife, Orthodox, and Dying Wish. This night, they are playing It Comes in Waves in full and selects songs from Slow Decay. Make sure you're checking it out. The next night, they're playing The Church. Acacia Strain, Kubakan, Euro Knife, Orthodox, Dying Wish. This time, they're playing Word more than its entirety. Don't fucking miss this. This band's coming out. They're doing their own gimmick. Album per show. If you're a big fan, this is the show to check out. Now, this is another wild one. Um, Philly Mocha. We got the West Coast kids. Absolutely loved hanging out with them in the San Francisco powerhouse shows that I talked about on the show. This is my friends in Scow. They're coming with Baltimore's own End It, Philly's Fixation, and Boston C4. This is at Philly Mocha. Sunday night show, December 19th. Bob Wilson has a show with Spy and Warren at the Yuki Club, July 3rd. We are going to have Year of the Knife, Cruelty, Despise from Scotland at Underground Arts, January 7th. Got so many more shows coming out. Make sure to check out phillyhcshows.com. I'm not going to ramble too much on besides to say that we've had tons of people in hardcore come on this show and they've talked about the heaviness and all this stuff like that. Very much New York hardcore centric or East Coast centric. But this episode was something special. I have a lot of love and respect for Brett. I have a lot of love for Ignite. And I really liked where the story went. And all you young guys listening going like, I don't really know too much about Ignite, blah, blah, blah. Take heed. When someone with this much experience, when someone who has taken a band from Orange County, California, and making it a band that is world known, there's some tips in here. If nothing else, if you just follow Brett's path or just take his uh, advice, his positive spirit, his hard work, the things that he says in this episode is a blueprint for any hardcore band coming up in this world. and. I'm telling you, it's something that everyone needs to learn a little about how to be in a band. And I think Brett lays it out perfectly. I really enjoyed this one. I hope you guys too. And let's fucking go. Today we are talking to Brett Rasmussen. That's, I think, the best way to pronounce your name, right? Yeah, Rasmussen. That's what I thought. Um, Of the almighty, legendary Orange County band Ignite. And uh, on the return post-pandemic, Ignite's coming back. I've done a lot of great shows with Brett. Ignite's one of my favorite hardcore bands of all time, and I'm just happy to have you on the show. Appreciate that, dude. Always good to talk to you. Always wanted to be on this show. I'm glad we worked it out. Um, we were trying to do it a few months ago, but yeah. it didn't work out for that time. But no, glad we're, glad I'm here. Glad I'm here right now and we're doing this. Cool. So we always start at the beginning um, into... 
our guest childhood background. Yep. Um, where where the first bit of music in your household comes from, and then eventually down the line, where that leads to where you start finding about punk rock and hardcore and whatever else brings you to right here. Well, I mean, it was my parents' vinyl collection that like got me interested in listening to music. I, I didn't get interested in playing music till you know quite a bit later. But uh, they had this amazing. We had the big old school stereo giant speakers, a big turntable. Um, obviously that was the only way to listen to music kind of back then, um, in the probably late seventies. Um, so I would go through and listen to the Beatles, the Stones, Hendrix, the who, um, wings, Eagles, like basically like the meat and potatoes of classic rock, um, is where I started. And then my dad, we used to go listen in his truck on his eight track to like Doobie Brothers, Steely Dan, Steve Miller band, um, kind of the more current uh, classic rock bands of the early 80s, late 70s. So that's what got me listening to music. You'd put those old school headphones on with the big coily cord and you'd plug in and put like the Beatles 67 to 70 on, which is all just like their greatest hits. And uh, I mean, as a kid, you know, eight, nine, 10, listening to that stuff, it was just like, the best songs in the world by the best songwriters and that comment that really got me started interested in listening to music. So that's where it kind of, that started from. We talk a lot about LPs, especially in the seventies um, into the early eighties and not just the, that immersion into rock music by records, but also the album artwork and how it kind of like as trances you as a young kid. Did you have any of that when you were looking at these records? Well, I mean, that's all you have, right? Nothing's on TV yet. There's no MTV in the at that time. There's I don't have any books of bands. So basically, all you have is that artwork to delve into while you're listening to that stuff. So, I mean, the Led Zeppelin was really cool because you'd like look into the pictures and try and find like hidden like messages or, you know, stuff like that. Um, my buddy had Kiss Destroyer and we would just look at that for hours because you'd be listening to it and you'd all the cool little like intricate details of the the drawing and painting and stuff and uh I, I yeah that that was really all you had so it was the layouts were so important back then and you know some bands slept on it and didn't put but the ones that put great like layouts and covers and inserts and stuff i mean you got rewarded as a kid listening to that stuff you got to look through all that great stuff now what age was this basically where you were like really starting to get immersed in all this Probably like, I was nine, ten, so probably like 79, awesome. 80. Yeah. yeah. That's like that perfect window where you're just old enough to start getting hip to things, you know? Yeah, you're not listening to the G.I. Joe 7-inch anymore. You want to listen to some music and like you don't have anything, so you have a pile of records that your parents have. So that's your default. That's the only thing you, you can do it, you know? So, I mean, <laughs> thank goodness my parents were into what they were into and not, you know, nothing wrong with jazz and nothing wrong with classical, but I'm just glad that they were rock fans. Uh, am I, am I wrong in assuming that you have been born and raised in Orange County or in that area? Yeah, I was born in Fullerton, California, like home of social distortion. Um, and I've been here between, between there and Huntington beach area ever since pretty much. Did any of that, um, like skate culture, hit you as that was starting to develop as a kid? Like was anything that's pretty prototypical of like what we think in the late 70s, early eighties 
you know, Southern California subculture that would eventually bleed into punk and hardcore? Did you went? How long did it take for you to get hip to that? Was it a school? Was it a friend? Like, where did you start being cognizant of these kind of things? No, I wasn't aware of that at all. I grew up in this big sports family. I, you know, my grandfather was a quarterback at Utah State. I had cousins playing at UCLA and Arizona State. So we were just a big sports family, watching sports, uh, playing little league, playing soccer, playing all this stuff. So music, other than just like listening to it, wasn't on my radar. Especially like the skate culture, anything like that. I was more just like, let's watch NFL on Sundays. Let's go to the Dodger games as kids. That was where my passion was. Was really into sports. So it wasn't until high school when I met some buddies who were into like, uh, you know, kind of darker, weird stuff from the UK, like Joy Division and Bauhaus. And I didn't really get exposed to like any like subculture, any underground music till high school. And that kind of opened the doors to, for me to like into the punk rock world too. Yeah. I've always just through movies like gleam in the cube and all the, like the old movies, you always yep. see like skaters and surfers and they seem abundant, but I imagine they probably weren't as abundant as it may seem for the movie's sake. And I, I wonder also as someone who is from that part of like the country, it's like, dude, it's a beautiful area to live in. So you're not really, you know, like, it's not as dirty as New York City where, like, you hear the stories about, like, oh, we were in the Lower East Side, and is it, like, now you're like, nah, I got a good family, I'm hanging out. <laughs> that's great. Dude, that's exactly, we were, we always talk about that there was, like, with ne- never that element in even, like, Ignite where we were, like, super angry. Um, we grew up in this, like, you know, <laughs> it's awesome, it's an awesome area, great weather all the time, you go to the beach, you go hang out, um, so there wasn't a lot of stuff for us to be angry about on that wasn't, like, on the political side, you know? Now, was the impetus to start playing music something that would come in high school once you start immersing yourself into the more darker music, or did you become a musician earlier? No, that was it. And my buddies wanted to start a band, and I was laughing because I was like, I don't even know what that means. I mean, I'm 15 years old, and they said, well, this guy's got a drum kit, and this guy bought a guitar. Why don't you go get a bass? And I didn't even know that a bass only had four strings, kind of that typical story where you oh it's uh, four strings that seems easier to play than a guitar and I didn't think it was a joke um but I didn't expect to fall in love with like playing music I just thought it was going to be a little hobby that I did with my buddies in high school when we were like 15 16 and we were just trying to play like songs that sounded like Joy Division or Echo and the Bunnymen or kind of that more like UK alternative uh 80s um melodic like rock stuff um and it was fun. And I immediately fell in love with writing songs because we never really did too many covers, even at that age. We just wanted to write our own songs. So fell in love with songwriting from an early age. And it was just really cool to, at that point, when you could just write a piece of music and finish the song. It was hard, you know, when you're, you don't know how to play your instrument. One, to just to get it in tune and then to play it and then actually compose something and write a song with three other guys that you can, you know, finish a tune. That was like, that was a really cool, like, uh, realization when we were like, wrote our first two or three songs. We're like, Matt, this is cool. We wrote our own songs. Yeah, they're terrible, but they're ours, you know? So that was for me what got me really turned on to actually playing music and wanting to like take it a little bit further and get better, you know, practice. So is it wrong to assume when you're in this high school and you're trying to get your bearings on the next evolution of, you know, teenage life? Yep. that you had the different crowds of people 
like the different like uh archetypal stereotypes that you see in these high school movies or were you seeing more of like a hodgepodge and a mix of different things like people that would dress one way but also be into this like what was the the high school dynamic as you came into it well i mean it was very segregated into the like the little cliques for sure you could see that um there was the punk rock crowd who i only knew they were the punk rock crowd because i saw their what t-shirts they were wearing and when i went to the record store to you know, go buy the music that I wanted to buy. I saw, okay, Discharge, GBH, this is definitely like punk rock stuff. And those kids had, you know, like spiked hair and shaved heads and stuff. There was that. There was the whole hip-hop thing was starting. There was all the, you know, the black kids at our school were into all that. Um, So it was like very like clicky as far as like um, scenes go. And I was on the basketball team. I was a um, captain of the basketball team. So I had a bunch of friends that were jocks and then I had my friends that were getting into music. So I kind of floated between a few different groups of guys and, um, kind of got a little bit of diversity that way, uh, early on. What was the, uh, what was the record store? Was it Zed's or what was the record store that you were going to? We would go to like Black Hole in Fullerton or Rhino Records in Claremont or yeah, I never really went to Zed's till later. Um, that was a little bit further away from me. Um, what else was there? Bionic Records. There was two or three of those stores. So there were some cool spots to go to. But my favorite was up in Claremont was uh, Rhino Records because it was a huge store and they had tons of imports. And that's what we were all about was like the UK imports. What do you think made you hip hip to that kind of stuff and push towards it? Was like the kind of like the I'm listening to something that no one else is or did you just really get into the sounds? I got into the sounds. I really liked the droniness of it, the darkness of it. It just, I really connected with that. And I mean, I think that had a big, huge influence on like how I still write songs. I really like the, the notes that carry on forever, the drony music, the dark, the minor chords. Um, I don't know. I just connected with that and it was just, I thought it was really cool. And uh, it didn't sound like it was impossible to play when I listened, would listen to something like a Steely Dan song, or I wouldn't even know where to begin to start dissecting that, but I could pick up like a Bauhaus record and pretty much learn how to play it immediately just because it was like a simplified piece of music. It wasn't very diverse at all. And I think I really connected to that because at that age at 15, 16, 17, you're starting to learn how to play music. And I just associated myself with that stuff that like, Oh, I can play this. So I think that also like drew me to it. Was it the um, was it the element of like being in the group of friends that was uh, getting you into that kind of music that that's what drove you to the, buy the uh, record or were you bu- already buying records that like your like for your own collection by that time? Because I was yeah. wondering what is I, that first record that someone picks up that really hits the spark? You know? Yeah, I started kind of buying before I started playing. So we, I started getting, I couldn't really afford, you know, to buy that much stuff. I worked a little part-time job at a fast food spot that <laughs> made like two twenty-five an hour. So um, there wasn't a lot of money to go buy stuff. So I would buy like a 12-inch, you know, of like a Joy Division 12-inch or the Chameleons or something that I that I could afford in the used bin. Um, but that was like right before we started playing in, a, in our little, our high school band. So yeah, we were already into like, going, buying records, immersing ourselves in that kind of stuff before we were actually... And, that, and that's what inspired us to then want to do a band in high school. Yeah, I think um, especially in the early ages when you're not a full-ass adult, it's yeah. it's hard to go out there. I, like, I, I know some people had crazy record collections, 
by the time I was like 15, 16, and it was like, just like you said, like money wasn't there to just go out there and hit the record store. And so a lot of times, like you said, the bargain bin was what you would hit. Or if you would see something in a thanks list or something was really like the impetus, like, oh shit, I really need to check this out, you know, or the, I, uh, was there any tape trading in your circle? Like, you know, dubbing shit for each other or anything like that? Definitely. I mean, so a couple of my friends had a little bit more money or their parents would give them a bigger allowance. So those guys, everybody would go to their house, bring over your Maxell tapes, spend time on the, you know, the tape deck running copies of, of whatever it was. Um, and that was huge because then you could like build your own little collection. It was a tape collection. It was just, you know, it, that was all you had, but it was important at the time. Now, were you, were you going to any rock concerts and or shows in general? Like where was your first live music experience? Big shows. Like I didn't understand that there was an underground scene for a long time. Um, most of when I was in high school, um, you know, at the end of high school, I started getting into like Jane's addiction and stuff like that. Um, there was a lot of bands going on in, in LA that, um, that I thought were cool, but, um, yeah, it was like national tours. I, you know, I think the first show I actually went to was Genesis at Dodger Stadium with uh, oh, a couple bu- buddies from high school. Yeah, on the Invisible Touch tour. I think that was like ninety seven or eighty seven. Um, and then just bigger venues, amphitheaters, and stuff. I didn't really the Roxy and the Whiskey and the Troubadour and these four hundred cap rooms where local bands would play or punk rock bands or smaller tours. I didn't. That wasn't on my radar really at all. Um, to go check that stuff out. Um, so I was like, I thought you had to be on the radio. I thought you had to be playing at like the forum or something where the Lakers played to, to, to be a touring band. That's, I didn't really grasp that a band could get in a van and go tour and play small, like VFW halls and stuff. I didn't understand that until quite a few years later that that was even an option to even participate in or go see a show. Um, and when I did that opened up a ton more doors, of course. Yeah, so like walk me through like the progress where it went from you being a music fan, but also, you know, still being active in athletics. For me, I was I played soccer in high school. Yep. I played I played soccer my whole life. So soccer was still a thing. And um so I relate heavily of like having those soccer friends and then you have, you know, your regular lunch table friends. But like walk me through the progression for where Brett goes from like you know, more of the rock concert until they start finding, like, how did you find the underground who hit, got you hip to it? Where was the inertia to start going to the smaller shows? Well, so probably like right after high school, as I was getting more into music, I had my high school band and that kind of finished with high school, but I wanted to carry on and do more. So uh, me and our guitar players started putting ads in the papers and jamming with guys. And, you know, the more guys you play with, the more, uh, insight you get the more information you get what other guys are into what shows they're going to um and that's just kind of how it naturally evolved into going to smaller shows i remember my first like kind of punk hardcore show was like a basement show and uh i thought it was wild it was like that first where you see you know a band playing fast beats and people kind of moshing and um it was interesting and i was just like oh that's cool that seems like it would be fun to uh go to more of these shows but i i was more into into like let's get like i wanted to get on stage i wanted to play and i had only played in my high school band at that point and played some uh backyard parties and things like that and i wanted to like my whole goal was i wanted to play i remember saying this when i was like 18 i just want to play like a, a club a club show and put out a demo tape that was like 
the whole driving force for me to like want to do music and the band I started right after high school. Um, we did that. We made a demo tape. We went in the studio, we recorded. So that opened, you know, my eyes to recording. Um, and then we started playing small clubs and we were just like kind of a rock band, kind of like eh, a little bit of punk influences, but mostly rock stuff. Um, social distortion kind of meets maybe psychedelic furs or something. Um, okay. And, uh, but it was fun. And I got that bug playing those first few shows. And then we started playing some uh, colleges during like lunchtime or high schools at lunchtime, um, trying to find ways to connect with like a, a younger crowd. And um, yeah, that, that just one thing just led to another. Like first I wanted to like, I want to play a club. I want to play a proper show with a PA. And then it was like, I want a demo tape. And that just kept evolving into making you want more and more. I, I was never satisfied with like, checking those boxes off. I was like, okay, what's next? So that was, that was really like what drove me to like, want to keep playing music and keep writing songs with guys. I'm glad you brought up the back, um, like the backyard parties, like the house parties. Cause it seemed to be very prevalent, um, in every high school that there's always like the bands that would play the party, you know, like whether it was the parents are going away. And I, and I was reading a book that was saying that was really easy for Orange County and out there because you guys had garages. So it was easy for bands to practice. It wasn't as industrial or city. So the the prevalency of bands that could practice or random shows where like someone would just say, Hey, this band's going to play in my garage. Like, was that stuff that you were hip to before you started playing? Like, what was that like? And then also what was the first club that you actually got into and playing after you talk about the, uh, the house show stuff? Yeah, I mean, so also backyards were as big as garage parties because weather is always good out here. So you could always just throw a band in the backyard and it, you could play to more people. So we played, yeah, backyard parties more than garage parties. Um, but rehearsal-wise, we would go play in our, you know, my buddies, my drummer uh, of my band when I was like 20 years old. We would play in his garage or we would play in the living room of my high school band, Um that's where we where we would rehearse on Friday nights and his parents were cool and they let us play in the living room. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that was, we didn't have to go get a rehearsal studio, you know, or 16, 17 anyways, we didn't know how to do that. Um, so we had to lean on like letting our parents like play either in the garage or in the house. Um, and then after a few of those and I did get, I think it was, dude, it was Christmas. 1989 it was at a venue in uh, Fullerton and it was so funny we didn't know anything in the I remember we went to talk to the venue and the guy said oh man Christmas is a great night to play and it was a pay-to-play thing where we had to spend a couple hundred buckets to a uh, couple hundred bucks to buy tickets and then resell them to our friends but I remember the guy the club like totally swindling us like oh man Christmas night's a good night a lot of people come out on Christmas night <laughs> We were like, okay, this is cool. It was so stupid. Yeah. Yeah, And of course the only people that were there were our friends, right. That paid the $10 to buy the tickets from us. But uh, it was fun. It was fun being on stage with lights and a PA and actually um, performing, you know, like what I had hoped to. So. No, I feel like um, that was how a lot of us got started. There was like a small club and the guy would say, every band has to sell this many tickets or the show can't happen. And then it'd be all of our friends just buying the tickets from each other so we could have the show. That's it. Yeah, that's exactly how our first couple were. And then we're like, okay, we're never doing this. We got to figure out a better way to do this, um, which there, of course, was. But uh, a lot of people, it's tough. You know, you're in a band, you are you don't have any, you know, your fans are only your friends and you want to go play at the whiskey in LA and there's the pay to play option. I think it still probably exists, you know. 
where bands want to check every, that box. Every death metal band and a lot of the regular straight metal bands that don't do the let me skate through the hardcore scene for two, three years, and even some of the death metal bands that are now pretty big like Cannibal Corpse and shit, half of their tour is playing for a concert venue, uh, a concert promoter, not a show promoter. Who has yep. no problem making five bands sell tickets to pay the guarantees? Totally, it's still shit. It's, no, it's, it's a it's crazy how prevalent is in the metal scene. So it's it's still a thing. And um, but I had to wonder for you: Were you building your chops up? Were you ever specifically taking lessons? How quick did you take to not just learning to play the instrument, but understanding music, writing music, music theory? Like, how deep did you go in at that stage? I mean, pretty much just practicing either by myself or with my buddies. That was it. We didn't, none of us took lessons. I remember our guitar player had a tab book, which would show the chords, but we never really used it. We just kind of did our thing and learned how to play the instruments ourselves. And, um, and I think that contributed to like your style, you know, um, it was based off of a lot of what I was listening to, um, Peter Hook from Joy Division in New Order had these really high melodic bass lines that he played up the neck, and that's what yeah. I wanted. That's what I wanted to do. Eric Avery from Jane's Addiction had these cool running bass lines with these really high, cool bass runs too, and that's what like turned me on for you know to really playing the bass than the style that I play it, which is, was just basically biting those two guys. Um, or Duff from Guns N' Roses, he you know really cool bass lines. They the bass lines that went high up the neck was what really like appealed to me. I love the sound of those high bass runs, um, and that's kind of what I started. You know that Ignite song. Later we can talk about it, but Ash Returns is like one of the first songs I wrote with Ignite, and that's got that high bass line up the neck. That's basically just a Joy Division Peter Hook ripoff. But um, that's that's where it, that's you know I cut my teeth on those songs so. No, I think that's great, and I actually that you just fucked me up. I, you're not the first guest to bring up an inspiration of a song that I've been a fan of, and it's always like, oh fuck, okay, that's where it came from. That's awesome, you know. Yeah, I um, mean that's literally it's just a, it's a you know poor man's version of a Peter Hook baseline. Yeah, we have Paris who said he took uh, a riff from Dokken and turned it into a Chromax riff, and then he took more riffs from Rush. It's awesome to hear the inspiration behind music like that. So yeah, they're all because there always is, right? This band never really formulated to like anything beyond demo stage, or what was the deal with your rock band? Well, so the weird thing was is the guys that are, were in that band and ended on ended up going and doing some pretty cool stuff. So um, our drummer, um, we had two drummers. Um, one went on to play in Game Face, Phil Hansen. Oh, okay, and, yeah, yeah, and. And then the other drummer was Ron Welty from The Offspring. He was actually playing oh, playing in The Offspring when we were doing our band. And uh, that's why he kind of stopped playing with us because they went on tour with no effects. And, um, and that was like in 91 or 2. Um, so that's so, like – so he was already on Nemesis at that time with yep. you, Big Frank and all that. And were you hip to Big Frank and all the stuff that was going on around that time with the labels or not so much? No, not so much. I didn't really have that. None of that was on my radar. I was just – we were just kind of focused on trying to – how to like sell these demo tapes at Bionic Records and how to get people to come to our shows. And I yeah, I really didn't understand that there was local labels, that there was guys running labels. Um, again, I thought most of it was like major labeled. I didn't understand like the DIY side of things quite yet at that point. I was just starting to get exposed to that. Um, 
and that band then kind of ended and um, nothing really came of that. And I literally thought at that point, I was 21. I think we ended in 92 or 91. I didn't think I would play music again. I thought I'd just finish college, um, go on to graduate school or whatever. And I had no real aspirations to do anything beyond that. Um, played like a handful of shows, 20 shows, some clubs, some parties, some colleges, um, put out a demo tape. And um, yeah, I thought it was kind of done at that point. Um, and it kind of was. I was just going to school. I was trying to play basketball for Fullerton College. I was... Uh, I was just going down down that path that didn't have anything to do with music. So how did you how did you roll into it? I know um obviously you were thinking about college and stuff, but like what we what was the serendipitous moment that made you go a little bit further into music versus just kind of like an another path? Well, one of the last guys when we were trying to like continue that band on that we tried out on guitar was a uh, uh, former or, or an old friend of our singers and it, it was this guy Joe Foster and um he came to one of our last practices. Uh, we jammed once. Um, he was traveling around the world doing a bunch of like modeling stuff. And which I was like, what? I don't even understand what that means. Um, but he's like, I got to go to Japan for six months. Um, maybe when I come back, if you guys are still playing, I'll jam with you guys. So band ended. And literally like six months later, I got a call from Joe and he was like, Hey, I thought you were a cool bass player. Um, uh, let's get together and like maybe jam or something. So, um, so that's kind of how that started my relationship with Joe. Um, I didn't know that he was in a band called unity. I didn't know he played with no for an answer. I didn't even know who, who those bands were at the time. And, um, we got together. He was actually trying to play in this old punk band called mad parade at that time. Um, okay. and, uh, he was playing bass for him. He got back from Japan and he, uh, said, I'm playing bass in this band called mad parade. Um, why don't you come play bass? I'll play second guitar. And uh, I said, okay, yeah, I wasn't doing anything. So we went and jammed with those guys for like a month. And then we both decided that it was like, hey, let's uh, let's just do our own thing. Let's do something brand new, fresh. Let's not play somebody's. It was kind of funny because like Mad Parade was an 80s punk band that kind of had that Sex Pistols Addicts kind of thing going. And uh, they seemed like it was an old band at the time. And it was only like 1992. And they were like big and not like 84, 85, but it was like, oh man, these guys are so old. Like, let's start something our, you know, ourselves. So that's kind of how Ignite started was, you know, I met Joe through my old band. We jammed once. He called me when he was back in town and uh, and then we just started, we started writing songs together and it was a blast. So I'm going to imagine once you kind of ripped it up with Joe, he kind of opened that that final barrier and you sort of really understanding like the underground DIY stuff. Exactly. I, yeah. Cause once we started playing, I got, I, I had some exposure to some hardcore bands, minor threat, stuff like that. Um, but I didn't know there was, you know, I'd never heard of like a uniform choice or like a youth of today or, you know, Chromags or anything like that. And, you know, that was kind of the world that Joe had like grown up in. So, um, yeah, it was cool. We started writing all the, he was, you know, playing me some songs. He played me some Pennywise stuff, some bad religion stuff that I had never heard. And, um, along with like Dak Nasty and stuff like that. Um, some more DC bands that he's really into, um, marginal man, stuff like that. And I thought it was cool cause it was melodic and I thought it was stuff that me and him could, could write that was similar. Um, it seemed like it was something that we could pull off and, uh, I just thought it would, I thought it was a cool opportunity to continue playing music while I was still going to school. And, uh, 
we were like, let's find a drummer. Let's get a singer. Let's start working on these. You know, we were doing drum machine demos and uh, having a good time doing that. But then it was like, yeah, let's get into a room and play with some guys. I wonder, I wonder if at that stage, Joe had the idea to like really push Ignite or was he just trying to like have fun? Like, was there, was there an organized thought process to like, okay, fellas, we're going to write this demo. We're going to play these. Like, was there anything like that or was it just fun for him at that time? I think it was more fun than anything at the, at first. Um, Joe had never really toured with any of the bands that he had played in. Um, Unity didn't tour, no for an answer. Uh, he never toured with them. Um, so I think we both had a common goal of like, let's, let's write some songs, let's record some songs and maybe we can get out and start touring. That was where it was like, first it was like, you know, the demo to the club show. Now it's like, well, let's make a seven inch and let's see if we can play. Let's see if we can get on a tour or play, you know, a good grip of local shows for some bigger bands. And uh, I think that we kind of both needed each other because I didn't have the insight or the kind of the wherewithal to realize that there was an underground scene. And I think like kind of my work ethic and um, everything allowed Joe, he saw that and was like, oh, this is going to be cool. This guy's a worker. And um, so I think, you know, both of us needed each other to kind of like start Ignite and start the whole process of like trying to become a, like a relevant band, you know, to compete with all these other bands that, you know, we thought that we could compete with. So that's how that, that's how Ignite, I think, really started was me and him just kind of like having fun, but then like seeing opportunity. Where do you think the scene was at the moment when you guys came out? Was it, because obviously there, you mentioned Game Face and there was that, there was that group of bands with Smile and stuff like that, that were starting to, there was a whole thing about the underground kind of getting noticed towards getting signed by majors and hardcore started shifting. But I wonder how Orange County hardcore was in the face of all that. Cause it, it was, the, um, by this stage, what are we talking like 91, 92? So we started jamming at the end of 92. Yeah. Me and Joe, and you got, yeah. I mean, you you got to understand at that time. So we were talking like end of 92, Going into 93, it, there couldn't have been a better time to start like a heavy or a hardcore or a punk rock band. You just had the Metallica Black, you had Nirvana, the whole Seattle thing was happening. Um, Rage Against the Machine just put out their record. Social D was on the radio everywhere in Southern California. Um, all these rock bands, Smashing Pumpkins, Nine Inch Nails, Tool, they're all becoming these big bands. And it's like lifting up the whole scene around. Um, not just the mainstream rock or the metal, but you got Offspring putting out the record, Smash on Epitaph, Green Days signed to Warner Brothers, Pennywise Ransom, Bad Religion, are all putting out these huge, important records at that time. And we decided to start a, a hardcore band right then. I mean, it couldn't have been like a better time for us to like have the opportunity to like be seen or have labels like be interested. And that whole thing just played into, I think that's the biggest reason. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things of how Ignite ever, you know, we got our chance to do anything was the whole music scene was shifting towards this big rock, heavy, metalish, punk kind of thing. And we were right in the middle of it. Yeah. So you guys were, you had the opportunity to play hardcore shows, but I imagine there was some opportunity to play earlier on some bigger shows. Yep. Yeah, our first show was with Ignite was supposed to be with Corn actually at a at a party in Riverside. The 
show got shut down that never happened. But yeah, that was going to be one of our first shows with, with corn. I didn't know who they were at the time that didn't, I had no idea, but, um, yeah. And, and just the interest, um, well, the, the Orange County hardcore scene, I didn't really know too much about it at the time, but, um, once I started going to local shows and seeing, um, the amount of people that were coming out to shows from anywhere from small, like little clubs, two, 300 to like big, bigger venues. Um, but a lot of it was based in that kind of skate punk, um, that Pennywise, you, you always see shows with like Blink-182, uh, Pennywise, Unwritten Law, Bad Religion. Um, that was huge in Southern California. And it wasn't until I got to the East Coast where I realized that like bands like Sick of It All or Shelter at that time or stuff like that were playing as big shows um, out on the East Coast um, as what I was seeing at home. Yeah, especially in, the, in that stage, the coasts were really uh, distinct in their sound. And it was a it was a diametric opposites, the fast melodic punk of the Southern California scene versus the grittier, heavier metallic stuff. And I think that goes back to this entire conversation. You haven't mentioned much of anything like besides Kiss as far as the metal side. And I've always felt like a lot of Southern California people really focus heavily on the punk and the melodic shit, and it's, it adds a lot of value to the songs like that you would later write and ignite. So it's pretty badass. Um, where did was there ever a moment where you were concerned about the band getting big and you not ready to like tour? Like, did you set your life up once you start playing shows? Like, fuck it, I'm going all in a band. Like, what was the all in decision? Like, to to not take a college class that would make you not be able to tour and stuff like that. Like, where was your regular life as Ignite's growing? Well, I mean, so I was going to school. I was working a construction gig and playing in a band because. Um, my parents had moved out of state, so I needed to work during the day. I needed to go to school during the night, which I either would go on Tuesdays and Thursdays or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, have band practices on the other days. And there wasn't really at that point ever, like, it felt like there was like a line in the sand that I was going to like make a decision to do music. I was just going to kind of see where it went. Um, we did our first real show, like, December, right at the end of 1993, we got to play with Far Side, Course of Disapproval, um, Drift Again, and Ignite, and there was an opening band. And uh, so that's at the end of 93, basically 94 starting. We go in, rec record a seven inch. Gavin, who was playing in Ignite at the time, Gavin Oglesby from No For An Answer, goes to Europe with No For An Answer in February of 94. And he's over there talking to the uh, guy who runs lost and found records. Yeah. And he, he asks Gavin what's going on in you know orange County. He goes, Oh, well, I'm actually playing in this brand new band called ignite with Joe from unity, Casey from no for an answer and uh, uh, Joe Nelson from trigger man and myself. And uh, he's like, Oh man, I want to hear this thing. So he said, we sent him a tape as soon as Gavin got home from the European tour. He said, Hey, send this guy tape. We sent him the tape and he offered us a, uh, a record deal. I don't know if you want to call it a deal. He said he put out our CD and put us on tour with either sick of it all or slap shot that summer. So this is like three months Very from quick. us yeah. playing our first show to where we're offered to go to Europe to do a two month tour with, it ended up being slap shot. Um, I mean, that's just right time, right place, right background. Gavin going to Europe with no for an answer, talking to this guy and it all fast tracked and literally 
six months later, we're in Europe. Our first show we're playing is the Holtzfred Festival in Sweden with Oasis and Blur and Motorhead and Pennywise. Wow. And I'm just like, we had just played a show before we left for the tour for like 30 people at this venue in Torrance, California. Nobody was there. It was just kind of like a warm-up show for us to go on tour. We get to Europe. We get on a tour bus with Slapshot. We go to this 40,000-person festival. I'm looking across the thing. The guy from Midnight Oil is up there singing on stage the song I just heard on MTV before I left, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on? How's it, how did this happen? And granted, you know, not all the shows were festivals like that. But um, uh, that was the first show we played in Europe. And we played in front of like 5,000 people. We were playing with The Refused and No Fun at All and all these bands that were on the smaller stages. And it was incredible. It was incredible to see in six to eight months how we went from literally playing our first show to being in Europe and playing festivals in these huge European venues with Slapshot, 800 capacity things sold out, people climbing on the walls. And it was a, it was a, it was a wild like year for us. Yeah. That was an era where a lot of the American bands had really started to finally come over and hardcore was really like a rapid growing and there was like a fan base that was insatiable at that time and lost and found which obviously later would go on to do some weird shit with records but i mean uh your first record scar for life would come out on that label and obviously early so early on ignite was embedded in the european hardcore thing i'm glad you mentioned Slapshot because i feel like there's a pedigree of a certain amount of hardcore bands that thankfully got a good relationship with Europe early on to kind of help steer their careers. Um, we've talked about that a bunch of the shows. So it must have been weird to kind of step back home and then play a show and be like, all right, now we got to go back and go to work, right? Yeah, we were worried that we were going to come home and like it was going to be nothing. But it, it kind of carried over a little bit. When we got home, we played a few shows and um, kids were getting the Scarred for Life <clears throat> CD on import. Uh, at Zed's and Vinyl Solution and stuff like that. So, and we had put our seven inch out um, domestically, which had three of the songs from that album on it. And um, we came home and we played a few shows and kids were going off and singing all the words. And we were like, wow, that's cool. That's what, that's what we just experienced in Europe for two months. Um, and now it's happening here. So it gave us like another, like, you know, the, a bunch of this optimistic feeling that we can do this here. It's not just going to, you know, so let's get on a label in America. Let's make, let's do the same thing in, in uh, America that just happened in Europe. That was our, like where our mindset was. It's like, how do we turn America into Europe for us? Because last, last and found at that time was the best hardcore label to be on in Europe for, aside from the, their business practices aside, um, they didn't pay bands. They, but they promoted your, I mean, we were in every magazine. You're at the airport, you're grabbing like a, the huge rock hard magazine. There's a giant Ignite ad in it. There's posters all over the cities. Um, they pushed their bands because they were making so much money. It was at the, you know, it was the peak of the most amount of money you're going to get for selling a CD and they were killing it, you know? So they were dumping a ton of money into marketing, um, which in turn got us paid, you know, got more kids coming to the shows and, and uh, buying t-shirts and, um, they would give us a bunch of CDs to sell live, but um, yeah, being on Lost and Found in Europe was, I, I think, absolutely what made this band. You know, it gave us you know the opportunity to become a bigger band because um, they pushed us and pushed us and pushed us. Yeah, and then we got home and it was actually going well here too. So we 
hooked up with Dennis Remsing um, at uh, Conversion Records, and he wanted to put our record out. Yeah, and that ended up being probably one of the most iconic 90s hardcore records of all time, The Call on My Brothers, with that epic intro. Like, if there's ever a hardcore, like, every great hardcore record has that first track, and you guys couldn't have picked a better one to start that one off, man. Yeah, it just set the mood for the record. This big melodic intro went from the halftime into the, and then jumps into the fast beat. And it was like, we wanted to definitely have a song with a fast beat as the first song on the record, but we thought it had the perfect setup with the big long melodic bass intro. And um, yeah, that album, Call My Brothers, ended up being, you know, a collection of songs that we had written over the previous couple years so it was for us it was kind of like it was our first record in the states but it was kind of like it felt like at that point like kind of our greatest hits because we were playing all those songs live it was like we handpicked exactly what we wanted to put on there there was a few songs that didn't make it and uh it was like i think a good opportunity for us to show what the band was at that time and uh yeah people still to this day like that record well it's it's just again and for us out in the East Coast, when this thing came out, this thing was probably kind of like that counterbalance I was talking about, where it's like, you know, we're listening to Madball, we're listening to all the New York hardcore stuff. And, you know, we were hip to Pennywise, we were hip to all the stuff we talked Rancid, all Bay Religion, but like Ignite really came off as the heart, like the most hardcore version of that awesome melodic sound, man. And, uh, you know, some really. I like especially it's it's fucked up. I think the the longer and the more often I've listened to it, the second half of that record has so many good fucking songs. There are so many fast songs that you guys don't play live now. Right. But I think ultimately I think that it actually was a benefit for Ignite to not sound like, oh, here's another band trying to sound like an East Coast band. Like you guys came out. I remember seeing you guys in uh um, which shut down and thinking like, this is like the fucking, this is your shit. And I know you guys have played, you guys have come through the East coast. You guys are playing house shows, but you're also playing out in these halls. And yep. I remember, I remember at one point, cause I'm, you know, I'm like 15 years old in 1995. So like, as I'm getting hip to hardcore, it was the more straight edge scene. You'd see these ignite shirts, ignite shirts. And I remember first picking up that conversion thing and just being like, Holy fuck, man. Like, so for you, I imagine it was an interesting kind of thing to kind of start growing. Cause I mean, here you go from playing a couple shows you're in Europe and now you're coming out to the East coast. How did it feel making that transition to not just being a West coast band, but coming out to the East coast for the first time, et cetera. I mean, it was awesome. We didn't really know what to expect. We didn't know if people were going to be like, uh, that people would know the songs or not. Um, I mean, Joe, kind of going back just a little bit, Joe, uh, the way this, the album was kind of like written, Joe, once we started writing and he could, he, we both saw this was going to be a real band. He was really like the goal, his goal was like to make a, uh, like a modern kind of day version of a uniform choice band. Um, that's what he wanted well, I'm to do. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> and that's what, like, he wanted to kind of continue carrying that torch because, um, I think in his mind, he felt that it was their whole deal was cut short. Um, and he wanted to continue that on because he did, he thought that that was kind of missing from the punk and the hardcore scene. There wasn't that melodic element with a singer who could sing like Pat. Um, 
And so that was a, that played huge into like our songwriting. Um, and we wrote a lot of songs that didn't have fast beat. We wrote like, you know, halftime songs and mid temp, mid like kind of tempo songs. Um, but I think the way it was constructed with the amount of fast songs and the peaks and valleys on the record is, is what made that call my brother's record interesting um, to listen to. Um, it wasn't just like seven fast songs in a row, then a slow song, and then another. It was like real peaks and valleys on there. Um, which um, for me, coming from the non-hardcore punk side, that's what I always wanted to push into. It was like make this stuff as melodic as possible. Um, well, why don't we make- talk about that for a minute? Because there's a moment, and especially on Ash Return, yeah, you have this big, 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 big buildup. The vocals are in, the drums are rolling, the sing along. And you managed to, I'm so glad you brought, I didn't know how I was going to segue and try to bring this up. So I'm glad you mentioned it, but there's these awesome moments where it is instrumental and and it's melodic and there's real harmony. And it's such a diversion from, you know, you have your fast part, you have your chorus, you have your breakdown, you have say like, you guys really change hardcore formula in a lot of ways towards stuff that you guys were interested in doing. And it dynamically makes Ignite a really awesome listen. Like, you're not just out there. I mean, uh, first of all, Uniform Choice is one of my favorite hardcore bands of all time. So I love hearing that. But, like, it's awesome to hear that you added to that platform of the melodic melodic, uh, guitars, the good sing-along, the clean singing. So how how was that? Was that just, like, uh, something that you little by little put in? Or you say, hey, let me try this? Like, how did you first start implementing it? I think a lot of it has to do with at that time and you change as a songwriter, you change as a musician. We didn't have a lot of pop sensibility at that time. We didn't understand like song structure in the, like the formal kind of structure where it's like, Oh, intro verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, end. That's typically how a lot of songs in the history of music are written. We just wrote parts that we liked and Oh, this part has a fast beat. Okay. Let's go to this like kind of, ring out part the bass should do a thing for a lot we there was no rules when we were writing the the early stuff in ignite and i think that was a lot of the charm of it was because it kind of just would go off on tangents but you know we had to like it, it had to be cool um but it it never was a situation where it was like uh this part feels like it goes too long we need to cut it just to cut it sake to so the the song could fit into this formula. There was never there wasn't a formula for any of these songs. We just wrote what we felt um and that's how those songs came out and I I think there's a a, a beauty to that on that record that it's we couldn't capture again cuz we're just different people now. Um and uh where like my songwriting head is at like I kind of like think more like cut the fat, make it every part important and um and that's not always the right way to write stuff i think it's i think and on that record we just were who we were and we those songs just naturally came out of us and um and that was just writing the music and then you know the vocals got put on it later and we wouldn't really change the music to compensate for like what the vocal needed to do it was like this is kind of the song we love the music like this let's let's fit the vocals around the music um, which is kind of different from how I write songs now today too. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of in a nutshell, why, how I think those parts and those, the melodic parts and the stops and the, the where it hangs and the bass takes off or the guitar takes off. It's just cause that's what felt good at the moment. And we stuck with it cause we believed in it. So where do you go 
once you guys start touring and how do you end up do you go back and forth to Europe at that time a bunch of times because I remember it first came out of conversion and then I remember you having the EP on Rev and I remember the minute you were on Rev the exact thing I said about the t-shirts it just quantified by 10 like boom you know I was going to a lot of heavier shows and the thug stuff, but I was still going to Floor Punch and all the straight edge shows I go to. And it just seemed like the minute that Rev got their hands on Ignite Night merch, it was like, boom, everyone had it. So can you walk us through like the evolution of the band from conversion to the Rev EP? Yeah, we did call my brothers. And that was in 95. And then uh, the label... I think it was either going to stop functioning conversion records or, and we were, I think we were signed. We told Dennis we'd do a couple records with him. I think, or maybe we, I don't remember if we were actually signed to a multi-album deal with him, but the label was kind of going under and um, Dennis wasn't interested in doing the label anymore. And the kind of the natural uh, label that we felt we should go to would have been revelation. Um, we talked with Epitaph. We talked with Roadrunner. Um, we talked with a couple other labels, victory. We talked to victory. Um, and nobody really like pulled the trigger on saying, yeah, I want to do your record. Um, and then we went and talked to Jordan. He was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, we said we want to do an EP. Um, we told him we were going to make it harder and faster than call my brothers. We want to like, we thought the next record should be more aggressive. Um, and especially it was going to be an EP. Um, he said, let's do it. So we signed like a three record deal with Rev and, uh, and then they, you know, they're the little machine that is Rev, which is now bigger. Um, they had distro, they had t-shirts in the catalogs. They could get your stuff to places that conversion couldn't get our stuff to. So it was a step up for us. You know, obviously a label like Epitaph would have been a bigger move for us, but it wasn't in the cards at the time um, to do that. Um, and we, you know, took took advantage of, you know, what Rev was making available to us. And, um, Jordan's great. Jordan at Rev. I mean, I still talk to him and hang out with him all the time. And I, he's one of the coolest guys that have, that I've ever worked with, um, on the label side of things. He's really a band's, you know, uh, owner. He, he, he wants the bands to be happy on Rev and he wants those, you know, you to be like successful and he wants you to be happy with him. And, uh, yeah, it was awesome. Awesome experience being on Rev and like going down that whole path. Yeah, I wonder um, where you guys would have been if you switched over to a label more like on the punker side, especially with the Hellcat imprint. And there was a big there was a big focus at that time in a lot of the bands that we mentioned earlier in this episode. And that was like one of my things. I'm like, you know, like uh, especially when it's interesting you brought up uh, Rev. They were they were not really. Re- I mean, they had their old back catalog obviously going, but that Ignite EP was probably the most hardcore thing they had put out in a little bit, like modern hardcore that they had put out. Like you guys gave them a resurgence of like, here's a band that's not from 1989, you know? Right. And playing indie rock or whatever. And they were, they had a lot of like sense field and far side. They had these bands that didn't sound like, you know, like a uniform choice or a youth of today or girl of biscuits. Um, uh, and that was kind of also played into the reason why we wanted to make that EP a little bit harder and faster. Cause we wanted, we didn't, 
I, I remember us talking that we, God, we, you know, we're putting this out on Rev, and they're they don't really have anything that sounds like us. I don't, we don't want people to think we're going to put out like an indie rock record. So it's like that was an actual conversation. Like, okay, well, let's make this record, you know, put embrace on there and and put these songs that like were bangers that, uh, yeah, that would you know explain you know tell everybody this is who we are and this is where we're going and we're staying the same and, um, yeah, it, it was a it was a it was a, it was a cool time for us to do that. Now, when you were you dealing with managers at any time so far, we've talked that managers are starting to come in. Because this is something that we talk about in other episodes. So I try to bring themes into it. Like, yep. at that stage with our managers or people saying, like, here's what you really need to do. Sort of. We wanted a manager, but we didn't. There wasn't really a fit out there for us, we felt. Um, we wanted somebody that was going to bring something to the table, not just like commission our shows if you were going to bring something valuable to the table then we felt it warranted you know us paying you you know we weren't making very much money on shows then or making no money on royalties um but if we were going to share this kind of like experience and share this business and this team it had to be somebody that would like bring something to the table and um we just really couldn't find that at the time that anybody we felt like we wanted to bring into our world and then we did work with um a manager like a little bit after that um we met a guy that we trusted and believed in and um uh this guy bill fold who was managing i think he started managing like the aquabats right then too um and it was a guy that got us and uh, we thought he could bring some stuff to the table and it did work for a little while and uh he got out of managing bands not too long after that so that was that was really our only experience with management this whole time. Now, because you were in the more melodic thing, were you having at any time uh, issues finding tours in the U.S.? Was it hard? Like, what were you, what was the tour plans? Like, what was the activity for Ignite around the EP beyond just playing the average shows? It's always been a challenge to get on tours, I think, for most bands, um, even with a record out and, uh, you know, uh, some marketing behind it. Um, we typically generated most of our own stuff. Um, we got lucky in 95. We got to go on tour sick of it all on the East coast for like 10 or 12 dates. That was like our biggest tour at that time. Um, we did kind of some typical hardcore tours in the mid nineties as well. We went out with, uh, earth crisis on a run. We went out with, um, integrity on a run, um, but most of the stuff we were doing, we were doing our own headlining runs because we weren't getting on, like the tours we wanted to get on were the bad religion and the Pennywise, uh, tours because there weren't bands that had that melodic thing going that were, uh, bigger than Ignite that weren't in the skate punk world. Um, so we were like, let's get on Warp tour. Let's get on a Pennywise tour. Let's get on a bad religion tour. And it took us a long time. It took us another like two or three years before we actually started like, getting on those bigger tours where we, you know, could, where those bands thought we brought value, I think, or their agents did, you know? Um, so yeah, it was, it was just literally piecing together our own tours, um, using Europe as our anchor, um, anchors for the year. We'd go to Europe probably twice, once in the summer and once in the winter, um, in those like mid to late nineties times. And, um, and that's what we would build our whole schedule around. I've always wanted to ask you this and now, uh, as 
the frontman situation has shifted once again. Where do you think Ignite's uh, reputation or the public appearance of Ignite went with all the like the really especially on the EP? Zoli went even harder on some of the more politics stuff because I know in the '90s zines there was like positives, negatives to everything, sure. just like there is now. It's fucked up that the '90s zines basically became Twitter now. In the you know they either loved it or hated it, but what was the the non Zoli members of Ignite's thoughts as he was bringing more of the politics into the, the forefront of the message of the band? We were all about it because he believed in it and uh, he brought it to us and asked us, he said, Hey, these are the organizations I'm pushing. This is Sea Shepherds. This is earth first. This is the stuff that I believe in. He's like, there's a million different things that a million different people can push, but this is the stuff I want to push. And um, I believe in it. I just, I don't just donate a little bit of money to these organizations. Or it's like, I go work with these guys hands on. So it was real. So that's what we liked about it. We liked, you know, working with the Sea Shepherds or Earth First or the Pacific Wildlife Project because um, it was real. It was stuff that we could actually, you know, get our hands dirty with, go down and work with these people here in California, you know, building cages for these pelicans and building this stuff that we would actually go contribute time and effort and energy to. So it was cool. So it, was, it wasn't just something that we talked about and it was um, a very hands-on thing for us. And, uh, you know, Zoli was flying the flag 100% on that and we signed off on it and it was, I thought it was cool. Gave us some identity and it gave us some stuff to talk about. Yeah. I remember, I remember it going like the, the floor punch crowd definitely was into ignite. And then there was that minute where like the giant ear stretched giant (laughs) pant vegan weirdos all of a sudden were wearing ignite shirts. And I was like, I don't think that they're like, because they were worn in a metallic evil, vegan shredded shit but i'm like how are they oh, they're fucking with ignite okay that's cool you know and then yeah. i remember seeing like pamphlets at some shows and sea shepherd shit and then like i i was literally such a neighborhood kid i'm like what are they doing with seals? they're fucking with seals i'm like all right like, like we're like wait you, you actually go near seal like i was like in my head going so these dudes are playing and they're fucking with seals like this it totally blew my mind because that's a total east coast kid you know Right. But um it definitely added an element and I just remember at that time, obviously like most things, there was always uh detracting points and then it's like also on the other end, that specific time and with that crowd was very specifically politically active. And I think it added a legitimacy so you guys weren't just screaming into the night, you know? Yeah, and you know, it was kind of funny. We actually we got a little bit of pushback from kids who was like, oh, you guys are vegan then, right? We're like, no, we're not. And we're like, well, how can you push this environmental or this social agenda if you guys aren't vegans? So it was, kids couldn't kind of wrap their head around that for a bit. And it was funny. We were were in Indianapolis, I think. And uh, I remember this kid came up to me when we played years later with like Goldfinger. And he said, hey, I just wanted to come apologize to you. I was like, okay, well, what for? He's like, well, back in the nineties, I kind of thought you guys were a joke because you guys weren't vegans. Um, and you guys were pushing these like environmental agendas. And I said, okay, yeah, we heard that quite a bit. And he's like, well, he's like, I was vegan then I'm not vegan anymore. You guys are still pushing your same agendas to still doing your thing. So 
uh, yeah, it was just some kid kind of had a realization that like, Hey, I don't have, we don't have to fit in your box to be doing good. And, um, I think there was some closed minds with that, you know, back when we were pushing those organizations and, uh, yeah, it was interesting. It was just interesting to see how kids, you know, minds work when they're 16 to 20 and they think they have the world figured out. And it's like, nah, just be a good person, do good things and, you know, worry about your own side of the street. For me, I, I look at Ignite and I know that there was like a growing interest in the band, but I've always been wondering uh, where TBT came into play. I recently had Tim Williams of VOD on the show. Yep. And I know that they picked them up. Like, was that just something where you were looking for something bigger at label wise and they were like the ones calling or how did you guys end up on TV, TBT? So at that time we did have the management. Um and we, I mean, you got to understand everybody was on like major labels or if you, you know, the bands on Epitaph were massive and it didn't feel, you know, a year and a half, two years later that Revelation was growing or providing like the opportunity, the machine behind us that we needed to get to that next level. So we actually sat down with Jordan and said, Hey, I know we've only put an EP out on uh, revelation and we owe you two and a half more records, but this is what we want to do. And this was actually the time where we decided like, Hey, let's, let's do music as a career. Um, and that was the point where we asked Jordan, we said, well, this is what, if you guys want to put the next ignite record out, this is our like whole business plan for the record. And uh, this is what we would like to expect from the label and it was beyond their reach financially and what they were comfortable doing and jordan said well and this was cool i mean imagine a, a record label owner doing this jordan said well what if i pay for you guys to demo some new songs and you guys can shop it and we'll help shop you too so you guys can like get on a label that you guys want to be on and a label where you think will give you the best opportunity to have a, like a career in music um blown away like Normally a label guy would say, yeah, tough luck. I'm going to put your next record out or, you know, sue me or whatever. But like Jordan from Revelation stepped up hugely and uh, paid for us to go demo three songs. We shopped it to, God, we shopped it to every label, um, majors, big indies. And the guys from TVT were by far the most excited. Um, Sean Roberts was our A&R guy. He was uh, breaking seven dust at that time. He was just signing VOD. He said there was a place that made sense on TVT. Now, we weren't going to get a lot of brand recognition, like if we were on a fat rack and get those built-in 100,000-something fans that would just go buy the record and expect to hear a, uh, a melodic punk record. Or, um, But the way they pitched the whole label to us and what they wanted to do and what they wanted to spend on marketing and everything, it, it made the most sense. And that's how the whole TVT TVT thing kind of came about was said, we're going to spend this amount of money on you guys. And uh, one of the big selling points was is that they were in the process of launching TVT Europe. And uh, they said, we want your guys' album that you guys are going to put out next year to be like the one we put the most money behind. So it was kind of like a win-win for us. Um, there was a great budget for the record. Um, it enabled us to do music full-time and uh, their excitement behind it really got us pumped up. Now you have to take you have to hope the label's not lying to you and you have to hope that they're telling you the truth and they're actually going to follow through with these things. But I mean, that's just part of the whole, 
music game, you know, it's a, there's a million stories of bands that put records out on labels when then they just give it the three month push and then move on to the next band. And we were hoping that wasn't going to happen, but it kind of did. And, uh, but that's how we got to TVT. Now going into the writing recording process, now thinking about as a full-time band, did you do anything different in pre-production? Did you anything, did you ever, did you think about more? Was there in a moment you're like, we've got to write this certain kind of song. So it hits on TVT. Like where was the thought process in the band as you're preparing this TVT record? Well, our management and awesome guys, totally cool guys. Um, <clears throat> they said, Hey, if you guys can, you know, don't force it. But if you guys can write a song with a chorus that these guys can take to radio, they will like, they will push a song to radio. Um, because you know, punk rocks all over radio right then. Um, so that was in our minds for sure. And we went in the studio and wrote the song veteran, um, at that time. Cause we thought that that was going to be uh, a song that we could turn into the label that would, uh, give us an opportunity to maybe have a song, um, to hit a bigger, you know, market. Um, so that there was a shift like for us on the songwriting side, kind of dangling that carrot going, you know, if you guys write a song that we can take to radio, we'll take it to radio. Um, at the same time, we still wanted to write like, uh, an extremely like aggressive record, Joe Foster and Casey are no longer in the band. They had quit the previous, you know, year year and a half um so we had some new energy we have a drummer in the band that's just phenomenal um was that when craig stepped in yeah that's when craig came in and started playing with his, us his um, his fills on that record is insane he's a ridiculous he some, drummer he did he just did so much cool shit like you talk about aggressive and energy and tempo like i don't know how many times i punched my steer when we all listen to that record it's like fucking, right it's like the fucking, it's definitely, and exactly what you're talking about. There's a lot of melody in it. There's hooks, there's choruses, there's some more slow down parts. But I think, um, you know, obviously there was a, that's probably the biggest gap or one of the biggest gaps at the time between releases for you guys. And you guys came out, boom, who sold out now comes and it's blistering. You know, it's, it's got the the real catty kind of like lyrics, like challenging some of these kids. Cause at that yep. time it was like shooting fish in a barrel with in the, in the zine culture, as far as like, Oh, look at the next band who signed in the majors. And it's like, you know, if you look at rev besides putting out shades apart, depending on where you sit of how hardcore yep. a shades apart record is, the next hardcore record that those guys put out would be a couple years later with, uh, in my eyes, you know, like, Exactly. Rev was ever was more of a back catalog than a front catalog. And I think that although they had some ability to help you guys in this as a small indie, I don't think that they could have got you some of the things that you got with TBT, you know? Yeah. It was just different. The whole, you know, you'd go in there, here's the college radio department, here's the commercial radio department, here's marketing. Like there's like actually like, you know, when we'd go visit the office in New York, there's like, you know, hundred people working there and it's a legitimate like big label. Now that's not everything, you know, you still have to write a, a, a record that people are going to want to hear. But when you got that machine behind you, you have some confidence that like, okay, if, if we make a great record, like these guys are going to help us like get to that, to hopefully one of those next steps that we're trying to get to. Um, and as it was a different team, um, as far as like the writing for the record, we, dem we demoed the whole album with uh, 
Cameron Webb, who we work on later records with. Um, he's just an up and coming producer at the time. So we record the whole record first. Um, we go on Warp Tour in 99. We get super prepared to go in and record this album. We get off tour, European Warp Tour, and we go into the studio the next day. And um, we were just this like machine that was firing on all cylinders at that time. And it was just like, it felt like nothing really could stop us. Um, if, if this is something that we really wanted to do, you know, we were going to put the work in, we were going to put the time in, we were going to write the songs that we felt were good enough and, uh, and then turn it in, turn it over to the label and hope, hopefully have them, you know, do something with it. Now, what did you, uh, what do you think you got out of that? Looking back now, thinking about like uh, the transition of the band from revelation to TVT, the warp tour, like, um, what do you, were the pluses, uh, worth the minuses, et cetera? That's a tough one because they completely balked on the Europe thing. So we got completely kind of screwed over in Europe, which is our bread and butter. They ended up not starting the, uh, TVT Europe label. Um, we had Epitaph and Burning Heart ready to go in Europe, but neither of them wanted to touch it after... It took so long for us to get anything done at TVT. Once they told us that TVT Europe wasn't happening, the record was basically out. Um, so none of those labels really wanted to touch a record that had already been released and the market was saturated with the U.S. imports. So Europe was tough because the record wasn't available domestically in Europe. And that's our big, huge market. We're playing festivals. We're on MTV over there. Um, and we don't have a record available in stores. So Wow. Yeah, it was it was uh it was like gut wrenching for us. It was so frustrating. We were so mad. Um so that was the downside. The upside is they did a lot of marketing for us in the states and we were able to grow. We got on a tour with the Misfits in 2000. We did a Seven Dust tour, we did a Goldfinger tour. So we were kind of like playing to bigger rooms or playing to like 2000 capacity rooms. Um and then in between those going out and doing our own headlining tours with like the, you know a hardcore package. Um, so it was kind of best of everything in America, but just, they really like, yeah, really like the European side of things was unfortunate. Um, luckily there was a label stepped in a major label on BMG called supersonic. Um, they picked up the album three months after it was out and pushed it and did a great job with it. But, uh, kind of missed that opportunity, that window to, I think, to, I even think have the, the album be even bigger than it was. And, and it became a big record in Europe. So within the first 10 years of the band, you guys really started to grow huge in Europe. And I think it was not, and I've said this a couple of times. It's never, it's not the hardcore bands that are the deciding factor on what the hardcore scene did as far as the growth, because I watched a serious shift, not only in the American hardcore scene, but just in general, the way that records were bought, you know, like immediately, Record sales in America were going down because of Napster and the Kazaz and the, the file sharing and the internet. And I feel like I watched bands who were doing insane at the end of the 90s and the 2000s still had the fan base. But I think there was like so many other things going on that the hardcore shows in general were getting just getting smaller. Maybe it was just too much even in this area. But did you feel the same way? Like it was getting harder to find anything hardcore related to tour. Now, obviously you did some really awesome non-hardcore related tours, but as far as hardcore goes, it felt like the, the 
double zero to about oh four oh five was a pretty dark time for hardcore as far as like bigger shows go minus american nightmare or converge or something like that like the traditional hardcore scene was not really finding an audience we didn't tour a lot uh, actually in the states then so yeah we kind of fell off the map too um we did a couple headlining runs in 2000 maybe 2001 time but we literally just focused on europe at that point um i think 2001 we went to europe five times um we uh teamed up with vans and created this vans off the wall club tour that we did this big tour with us and snfu powerhouse deviates and this band from sweden called venaria so we did this huge month and a half long tour that we branded with vans so we saw that we were getting paid when we went to europe we could pay bills we could um live um from the income from europe and the america for us we yeah it just the op- opportunity wasn't there um and bigger tours weren't presenting themselves we didn't get you know like a suicidal tour or a rancid tour in america which we would have you know taken at any point but um all of our opportunity was in europe so yeah oh when we went i think we went five times we went on a bunch of festival runs we did a winter tour we did that vans tour and that's what we focused on you know it's like focus on what you can control <laughs> and we could control the like the amount of shows we could play in europe and uh and having a place called home out at that time um and it just grew into this really big record um kind of took us to that next level in europe um which enabled us to continue doing the band yeah, I imagine all that activity has got to be the thing that drove you to Century Media when it's all said and done. They wanted to sign us since the beginning, literally since. Oh, shit. Are you kidding me? <laughs> 95, 96. And it didn't feel like the right fit for years. Um, well, they were just... really, especially in the mid 90s, they were really pushing, pushing that mid, uh, that Swedish sound that became like giant. There were so many things. I yeah. remember. I remember all the magazines and getting so many central media CDs and dude, they had some wild bands. So I think Ignite might've been kind of wild. With like it did. Trial I mean, they did, have a, and all shit. <laughs> they did have a few hardcore bands on the, on the label, but it just didn't feel like the right fit. Um, until, uh, this girl, Melanie Schmidt, who was a, uh, journalist, she wrote for visions magazine in Germany and a bunch of other magazines. She started working for the label, uh, we were friends with her for a long time, um, and she really wanted to bring us into the label for uh, the Our Darkest Days album. And uh, it was, again, it was kind of like the TVT thing where you you kind of got to go with the person who's showing the most interest um, and trust them and believe that everything they're saying is actually true. And uh, when we went with TVT, it, it, it happened the right way. It was, they really were passionate about, you know, signing ignite and pushing it and uh it it's been a perfect fit for a long time with them now what do you think the difference is as far as trying to be a band that is obviously your band is making you a living so there's an impetus there but where do you think you start getting different ideas creatively like where like we we mentioned earlier we started being more succinct and cutting out the fat like the fat of a track what was the uh what was the driving force in that well that's when we started working with cameron webb so he did all the pre-production for a place called home we did the record with tom wilson who had done like a ton of famous albums offspring smash vandals record i mean a ton of stuff um and then when we did a place uh our darkest days um we started working with cameron um on all the pre-production again and decided that that was who we were going to record the record with and uh cameron pushed out a lot 
he um he wanted to make that record um the best ignite record that we'd ever written at that point and uh we trusted him we trusted like hey this part goes too many times let's cut this down we this every part in the song needs to be important it was interesting when we had all these songs ready to go bleeding and poverty for all and judgment day and all these songs um when we took them to cameron um these 15 songs um he literally like told us to go home and keep working on him. He goes, this stuff's not, this is not a good record. And he was right at the time because those songs weren't finished. And so we were like, oh man, we're like, it was just like a little disheartening, but I'm glad he was so tough on us because he made those songs so much better. He got the most out of us um, on the songwriting side, um, really pushed us to make these songs better. And, um, and I think the proof's in that record. I mean, as far as like a lot of Ignite fans are concerned that Our Darkest Days is their favorite and, you know, they think it's the best Ignite record. And um, and I was really happy with the record, how it came out and everything. But I think a lot of that, um, really being smart about the choices, lyrically, musically, everything was us actually working with a producer for the first time and we're all on the same page and we're all trying to make a great record. How does doing the band while you're traveling so much in Europe, how do you, how does your real life, uh, does it have balance? Do you have to make concessions? Like, I mean, as you're like a professional musician, obviously, you know, your family understands, but what, what are the things that you do to manage, manage to balance that? You know, we're gone a lot, a lot in Europe. So it just feels natural to be over there. It doesn't feel weird to be gone so much. Um, nobody's married in the band at that point. Nobody has kids. Um, were there to go do music and there weren't really any obstacles. There weren't really any challenges. Yeah. You do miss your sister's birthday party. You miss your buddy's wedding from time to time. You know, you're gone on big holidays, family trips and stuff, but that's just part of the, like the collateral damage of like going out and doing a band. And if you're okay with that, and if that's what's making you happy and that's what you want to be doing, then there's really not a second thought or an afterthought of it at all. And that's where we were all on pretty much on that same page. You know, um, we all wanted to be out there doing it and, uh, it worked. When you look at the, the outcome, our darkest days, um, you guys knew you were going to have to tour even harder or did you already have a preset plan with, you know, Hey, this record's going to come as time. We're going to do dedicate this. Like, I mean, um, sound wise, it has the most, I would say the most compressed professional output of anything Ignite has ever done. Every track has all the, the bells and whistles, you know, it's not like, Oh, this, this one or two songs on the record. It's like, it's song after song after song. So how did you prepare knowing that you were going to have to really promote this? I mean, we were excited. We wanted to, we, it's kind of weird when you're living inside the creative process of the record, you don't really know how people are going to react to it. You really don't. You hope that people are going to like it and you can only trust your own instincts. You're like, if I think this record's great, then that's all I'm going to lean on. And uh, we we knew we had a really good song in Bleeding. Like, uh, I wrote that song. I was in love with the music. And then when we put the vocals on it, I just thought it like, made it the best ignite song we had written at that point so we knew if maybe we got a little too melodic or a little too heavy or a little too 
whatever on our darkest days that we had bleeding as the first track and people were going to like gravitate towards that song and be stoked on it. And it was going to give a, get us a little, like get out of a jail free card for the rest of the record. And that's exactly what happened. People, I mean, it's a lot of people's favorite ignite song ever. And, um, we just wanted to go tour. I mean, we went out with comeback kid. We did a, like a co-headline with them. Uh, we went right into a strike anywhere tour after that. And we went out with Pennywise for, two different runs across Canada, the U S West coast. We were ready. We wanted to open all the doors in America that were never opened for us. And, um, that's what we were prepared to do. We knew Europe was going to be awesome. We knew the festival opportunities were going to be there. We were never going to be playing with Slayer and Metallica and everybody on the, on these big shows and, and the, and the winter and the spring runs were going to be great. Um, yeah, it was exciting. It was exciting time to, start you know looking forward to the next year and a half and it actually ended up turning into like three and a half years of touring because we kept getting like hey these guys want you guys to come to uh moscow or we want you guys to come to south america and play in you know chile or all these areas that we'd never had the opportunity to tour that album gave us those chances those opportunities to go tour because it you know people (laughs) people ended up really really liking that record so yeah, we we toured all the way from 2006 when it came out up to when Zoli um, got the opportunity to go sing in Pennywise. And that's what I was going to get to. It seemed like you had finally built a domestic audience that was beyond just the fans of the hardcore scene. And you guys were ripping and rolling, man. It was like, and to me, it was getting crazy because we'd be at a show, like a show that would have nothing to do with hardcore. And you'd see Ignite Church. You're like, oh shit, like <laughs> they're catching right. on, you know? And so where did the band, where did the band's morale go when he got the opportunity to do Pennywise? At the time, after touring three and a half years on that record, um, playing hundreds and hundreds of shows, um, it was break time. I mean, you know, at that point, 20 years together, most of the guys have been in the band since, uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, Craig and all those guys joined like late '90s, early 2000s. Um, it felt like it was we needed a break, anyways. And when that opportunity came up, when Jim left Pennywise, um, I was like, "Oh, they're definitely gonna, you know, get together with Zoli and see if it works." Um, I thought it was the perfect timing. I thought it was the perfect fit. We weren't ready to go write a record. Um, we were done touring on the record. And I thought potentially it was a good opportunity for us to get a bunch of Ignite fans with a new Ignite fans without having to go tour with Ignite. And uh, so, yeah, he went and did that from like August, I think of 09 through almost to 2013. It was almost four years he was in Pennywise. And And so, uh, yeah. What did you do with your time off? I started a side band with Nick from Ignite. We did this band, Nations of Fire. Craig was playing in Strife. Um, Brian was playing in Into Another. Um, so we were doing stuff, um, music stuff, but uh, there wasn't a lot of time to uh, to do Ignite. Uh, we'd go to Europe one time in the, each summer for a short run. Um, and Fletcher was super cool about bringing Zoli into Pennywise called me goes, Hey, we're going to try him out. I just want to let you know, um, ignite doesn't have to break up. You guys can still do stuff around the Pennywise stuff. Um, I mean, I, I love Fletcher. He's like 
one of my favorite guys in the punk rock in whole the whole punk rock scene um it felt right and i thought zoli went and made a great record with them yeah it's actually outstanding because like i mean not that a pennywise record is subpar but they have such a uh, a similar tone at times and i think that the things that he brought to the record really stood out for them yeah i mean and they worked with Cameron Webb, who had done the previous Pennywise record, the last Ignite record. Um, it was all there for them to make a great record, and they did, you know? And I think a lot of the Pennywise fans still hold that record in high regard, even though, you know, Jim's back, and I'm friends with Jim, and he's made amazing records with Pennywise. I think the record that Zoli made holds its, its, its own little place in their history. So it... So when you look at your discography, it goes like you were you put out a shit ton of sp- uh, stuff, whether it was like authorized or unauthorized with Lost and Found. Yep. You had demos, you had a 7-inch, you had the record, then you had the record and coming out on a different label. And then in the first four years, there's all these releases. And then in the preceding years to come, it would just be further and further windows when the band would release stuff. And I, I always wondered if that was something you, as a songwriter look back on and wish you released less or released more? Like what was your thought process as you're, as Zoe's uh, out doing it? Like, were you like, we need to get something out or do you feel like the next record's timing was where it needed to be? Well, I always wanted to put out more stuff throughout the whole timeline. I thought at the beginning of Ignite when we were putting out something every 18 months was felt right to me. Um, that's not entirely realistic if you're going to be a touring band and, uh, there's just, you, you have to spend time on writing songs. You have to come home and spend four or five months, I think, writing. I think it's very hard to write on the road. I think it's possible. But when bands say they're writing on the road, I don't think, at least for us, uh, as much gets done as when you're at home focused and writing, rehearsing together, spending time writing your own demos. Um, so in hindsight, would I have liked to put a record out after our darkest days? Yeah, but Zoli was... Do- it was, we, we did. It was, it was the Pennywise All or Nothing record. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, it would have been nice to put a record out in between uh, that time, but it just, it wasn't, um, the chance wasn't there. The, it wasn't set up to do that. You know, he was playing in that band. Um, and, it, you know, that's just how it went. So, um, so yeah, regarding timeline, I mean, we were kind of stuck to what we were had, they, had the chance to do. I think um, for me, I was wondering what Ignite would do, you know, like what, you know, and I mean, you guys actually played some shows in between. So it wasn't like, like what Fletcher said, like you guys had come, you guys were staying active when you guys could. Yeah. But I was wondering what the material would shape up for with him and Pennywise. And I was wondering like what you guys could do. And, um, where do you think post Pennywise Zoe was at? And then, you know, obviously now leading into his departure, you've got this absolutely fucking force back in this new singer. It's fucking sick. And uh, I'm kind of excited to see the new page in Ignite. I wonder if you're going to, do you think post pandemic as we're dealing with now, do you see you guys being more back to the old style of hitting the road again? Like what are your thoughts as the band's moving forward without Izzoli? Yeah. I mean, we want to be touring as much as possible. Obviously it's a weird time right now with what's going on. So that's going to dictate a lot of it. But I mean, if we had our druthers, we're going to be out there, you know, a hundred plus shows a year, um, minimum. Um, 
we want to, we need to, it's what, you know, it's what drives us. Um, and now we have the opportunity, you know, five guys all on the same page now. Um, and here's the thing, people grow apart musically and personally and people's lives change. Um, and it happens in most bands, especially bands in our scene, you know, from agnostic front H2O, hate breed, kill switch, tear. I mean, it seems like there's all, always band members changing. So it's not something that's, you know, new to this scene of music of, uh, now, you know, changing singers is a, is a big deal. And we weren't going to do a new record with a new singer unless we found a guy that we felt was, you know, going to make the band presentable and amazing and the opportunity to do a record that we felt would be on par with the previous record. So, um, you know, we took it absolutely seriously and we got together and we, you know, us four said, Hey, we're going to try and find a guy in 2020 when all this crazy stuff's going on. And if we don't find a guy by the end of the year, then maybe we'll do something else or leave that window of opportunity open when we do find a guy. So, um, but the focus of finding somebody that we were going to be able to like write songs and record songs on the level that we previously had done was absolutely at the forefront of our, our thoughts and our minds and the whole process. And, um, and yeah, and when we got together with Eli, it was just instantly, it instantly clicked. How did, like, how did you unearth him? Like, how did, like, there's a lot of people that could have filled that we were thinking about, but like, how, how did you land on Eli? We didn't want to get together with a guy that was going to dictate like our life, life schedule and we were going to have to wait on. So we didn't want, we wanted somebody that was going to be in it a hundred percent from the get go. Um, we tried out a few guys. There was actually some guys from Europe that sent demos, some guys from East coast and no like big name guys. Did we ever really get together with, um, but nothing was really clicking as far as, uh, the voice we were looking for the right fit. And, uh, I was talking with our drummer, Craig, who's pretty involved in the metal scene. And I said, there's gotta be a metal guy out there that can hit notes and that's into ignite that, you know, that would want to do this and be a good fit. Um, and he said, well, let me call my buddy Eli who plays guitar in Holy Grail and uh, see if he's got any, you know, recommendations. So I, Craig calls me the next day and goes, well, Eli wants to give it a shot. <laughs> and I go, can he sing? He goes, I don't know if he can sing, but he says he wants <laughs> to give it a shot. So we sent him a couple instrumental demos and he sent back uh, vocals to two songs and we were like, oh wow, we got to get in a room with this guy. So, um, and from the day one we got in the room, it was just like very comfortable, very natural, blue collar mentality, work hard. He didn't ask even for the first probably month or two if he was even in the band or if this was going in a good direction. We just got to work. Like we got in the rehearsal studio, COVID masks on, people not letting, you know, it's crazy, crazy time. And, uh, and then we had one rehearsal with them and then we started getting into uh, demoing and songwriting immediately and worked like straight for like two months. Um, and then we were all sitting around and we said, Hey, you know, you're in the band, right? He goes, well, I kind of figured I was since we, we've done 14 songs together now. 
And, uh, <laughs> but it was just a natural, no pressure, no stress, no like weird vibe. It was just like, Hey, we're all on the same team working together now, which was really cool. It was a really cool, the whole thing, how it unfolded. I love the idea that in this story of yours, you're like, I don't know, maybe I'll just play in this band for a little bit. <laughs> it's just like, it became your life, man. It, like as a person who nonchalantly walked into his first high school band right? and can actually say is a pro- professional touring musician, it's got to be something to look back and go and, and respect the serendipity of it all. I think that played into a lot of it that there wasn't these crazy expectations that it had, it would, this, this was going to define me and I needed to do this. It was just this natural thing that kind of, yeah, I was doing it part time and then got together with these other guys and then really liked how the music sounded. And then, oh, and then this opportunity came up to sign with this German label and go on tour. And we literally thought the Slapshot tour was going to be two months of shows a month of vacation in uh, Europe, and then maybe we'll go back another time at some point. I don't know. I didn't know we were going to be headlining our own tour 10 months later on our own tour bus with Undertow and uh, who else was on Temperance supporting us. Like, you know, that was like a year and a half after the band started. We're headlining our own tour and our own tour bus. So it was just this kind of natural progression that happened that we didn't put any crazy expectations up other than just work hard and uh, work hard and work hard and work hard and you'll see results. And then new opportunities will present themselves if you work hard enough. I always wanted to know, cause I, I saw it firsthand uh, touring Europe, your first run, you get a little bit of the show, you see some of Europe, but by the expanse expansive nature of how much you've toured Europe, you've had to play places, not only that, like, I mean, obviously the big name Western countries, but sure. There's such a dynamic other spectrum of Europe as you grow in popularity where you start playing the, like near almost near the Balkans or the East. And like you said, you guys in Moscow that had to really shape your world vision, like ultimately like how the world interacts because obviously America we are probably the, the the country that travels the least internationally. That's not on a fucking cruise. So yeah. you had to you had to gain some real life experiences and a better compassion understanding of how the world really works. You meet so many different people. They live in so many different cultures. And the further you go east, the uh, you know the more interesting and it, it is is through my eyes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have so many amazing friends, uh, in Europe now, uh, uh, I'm the godfather to this amazing girl, my, one of my best friend's daughters. It's just these, these, the opportunity to meet people and see culture and see life experience traveling and actually talking to people, um, and seeing, you know, how, what the effects of communism had on these countries and, uh, the leftover effects from World War II, the real effects of on these people and people you can talk to, my buddy's grandparents and stuff. It's it's very interesting. It's very eye opening. I think it's you know, it's stuff that you obviously can't read in a book. You have to go do that. You have to go talk to these people and and see these people and see these countries and see how people are living around the world to really grasp it and uh, and really figure out how small the world is that you can jump on a a plane and you know 10 11 
hours later, you're in Europe on the other side of the world. Um, um, yeah, the, the, the experience of traveling South America, Asia, all that stuff is just, you learn so much about cultures and people that way. That's what I was going to next. Yeah. You, you went to South America, man. Like, I mean, as, as far as it, that should be somewhere North Americans should know more about. We probably right. know the fucking least about South America. So as far as experiences go, how that, how that feel to be in? Like, I mean, cause I know we did use it today in 2016. Yeah. And, um, there were kids from Colombia with like flags on their backs. Like the South Americans are so rabid as far as like punk and hardcore fans. Like it, it had to be something special. That was the first time we ever had kind of like the Beatles experience. We, uh, we pulled up to the venue in Santiago, Chile, the first time we went there and they'd been writing us letters through, you know, old school and when people would write actual letters to us and mail them and then through the MySpace era and email and everything. So always hearing from kids in Santiago, Chile, please come to Santiago, Chile. And, uh, when we, we got there, we were pulling up to the venue and there was like, it's like a hundred kids outside the venue. We didn't have any idea that they were waiting for us to get there to go sound check. And, uh, we got out and like, they were so excited, so uh, excited to meet us and talk to us and see us. And, you know, we stood out there for probably like, you know, 45 minutes and signing stuff and all the vinyl that they brought for us to sign and just like talk to these kids and stuff. So it's cool to get a glimpse into that world, you know, a little bit. Um, it'd be weird to live that lifestyle every day where every time you walked out of your house, you were being mobbed with people or something like that. Like, I don't think anybody really wants that, but, um, but experiencing that, that time in South America in Santiago, Chile was, was really cool. And, and you appreciate these people more and more and they're so passionate. And so, like you said, rabid, um, about the, the music that they're into. Um, it was, it was cool. I think it's always interesting. Uh, when you are able to tell your family, like, oh, you know, he's on tour because they think of the Rolling Stones. They think of the bus. They think yeah. of all this, like, like, like the TV show idea of what a rock band is. But I don't think they really understand it's the hostels. It's the weird 18 hour drive because there's no other way to get the fucking, you know, from Austria to the eastern part. Like, there yeah. had to be so many times where people back home, like, oh, well, you know, Brett's a tour musician and they think you're like sipping on wine and caviar and you're inside your own tour with Schumpf and the MED guys, you know? <laughs> yeah. As long as they believe that, that fantasy world that they have, I'm fine with that. No, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's, you know, it's budget airlines, barely making it through customs, um, running out of gas in your sprinter van, like getting stuck in, you know, Bosnia, like whatever. It's like, it's, it's wild. It's kind of wild style out there, or or it can be. But then there is also like, hey, we're gonna go play the Reading Festival with um, Blur or somebody like that, and then it's like full, you know. So it's the full spectrum. It's the full spectrum experience being in a punk rock and a hardcore band because um, you do get those amazing moments. But then there's also a lot of like, yeah, we're playing a squat in the eastern side of Poland, and it is what it is. And like, you better appreciate that those like eighty five kids are coming out to go off. Well, that's, I I think that's the humility side that really kicks in on them tours because it's not all it's not all fancy places and you have to respect the people like you said this this the small squat or the weird beer hall in eastern Germany where you may not see this as the greatest thing but to them they're putting their time and money into you 
and it and it reminds you like this isn't just about your experience, but you're you know you have people who are fans of your band and are moved by your band, especially your 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 fans, America, Europe. Ignite has a different impact on people, man. And I wonder if that ever reflected in like you getting off stage and having a conversation with a with a fan, and then it emotionally affect you after the fact. Like, man, that fucked me up. Well, the weirdest thing always for me still to hear is when somebody comes up because I have my favorite bands that I've listened to from when I started listening to music, Beatles to whatever. And when somebody tells you that they're your you're their favorite band, and they're dead serious looking you in the face, it's it's heavy. It's like, man, I have an impact. Like this person thinks about my music or me or this band like a big portion of their life. And it's a big part of who they are and, and you know, their life experience. And uh, you forget about that because you come home from tour and, you know, you got to go uh, pay your bills and then you got to worry about family stuff. And you just fall into a little bit of the daily routine of life. and. Uh, it's interesting sometimes when you see those, we get those Spotify reports, you see how many countries of people that follow your band and how many millions of streams that people listen to your stuff. It, it, it's humbling. It's cool. It's cool to see that. Um, makes you appreciate what you do and what the opportunity that we've had to do Ignite. Um, that we don't take it for granted. We love doing it. Um, all the guys in the band love being on tour and playing for people, whether it's a huge show with Metallica or handy street basement in Jersey for those 50 kids that could squeeze in there. You know, it was, uh, I appreciate all of it. You know, I love it. You, you talk about this band and I have to get a sense that at no point were you ever like, you know what? Fuck this. And I wonder where that comes from. I don't know. I think you put time and energy into something and you hold it precious. It, it becomes something of very, of value to you and you hold it in a high regard and you want it to be, something special not only for me but for the fans um and yeah it's just man it's just it's been a crazy ride it's been it's been really cool my one of my favorite parts is writing songs and seeing people sing it back to you at these live shows you know you write a song on the edge of your bed with an acoustic guitar and then it somehow makes its way onto the cd and then it becomes somebody's favorite song and being involved in that from like the birth of that song is like, it's not too many people in the world get to experience that, you know? And I don't think people should take it lightly who do, you know, it's something cool. Not a lot of people get to do that. So I'm appreciative of that. I wonder if you have any kind of like, uh, I don't know what I don't know what you would call it, but it seems like you have built up an insane resume of intricate little skills along the way because this band started pre-internet. This band started and and when you said writing letters, it reminded me of all the letters I wrote as a kid in hardcore. But like you started in hardcore when there was pen pals and yep. there was tape trading and any piece of mail you got was like a big deal. And you're now in the age of the internet where, you know, someone can write directly to you if they had your Instagram right. and just tell you something and all the different things it take to manage the band. Uh, um, 
every aspect of from the merchandise has changed, the way record labels work, the way the fact that we now our digital streams and YouTube. It's gotta be it's gotta be insane to see the evolution not only of your band, but of the entire way this whole thing happens. Yeah, and along the way of of when everything changes and everything's gonna change again and it always changes, like the biggest thing is the relationships that you have with people in the industry, people in your band, people at the label, people in press, your fans. It's really about the relationships. And I think the first time I heard that, I didn't really believe it. It was in a studio recording class I had um, at Fullerton College in, I think, 1990. And my teacher, we were going to go and learn how to run a 24-channel board and uh, learn how to record. Um, he said, none of this matters. He said, none of these buttons. You can become a great engineer. You can become a great guitar player. You can become a great technician. He's like, if you can't work with people or you know, get along with people, he's like, you're never going to do anything in this industry. And uh, I, I listened. I heard what he was saying. But once I got out there and started doing this for real, I saw how true that was because really music's a small world, you know, um, you get a bad reputation, you get, you know, blackballed, it can happen quick. And, uh, I always thought it was important to, uh, nurture your relationships. Where do you think of all the things that happened, not in hindsight or things you would change, but what do you think was one of the biggest missteps that Ignite took? Um, well, the TVT thing was rough. Um, I always wondered where the band would have been had we been steered in a more of a direction. You got to understand at that time, so million dollar deals, half million dollar deals, those were flying off the table. Now bands usually typically spent all that money. Um, we signed a pretty big deal. Um, we did spend that. We spent all the money. Um, but at that time, the mindset from management and from ourselves, not just, I'm not going to blame management for this was, uh, probably better to try and get on a major or one of these massive indies rather than, you know, do like a epitaph or a fat rack or one of these smaller punk rock labels, you know, and when I say smaller, I mean, not Warner brothers or Sony. Um, that was probably a misstep. We, sh I think we should have, um, in hindsight, I think it would have been better to get on one of those labels that had the, some brand recognition and would have been a better home for us. Um, cause there's plenty of giant bands on labels like Epitaph that are, do you feel <laughs> like the OC, like you guys have a really clean cut kind of look. Do you feel like you, if you guys costumed it up, it would have been easier to get on a punk label or go over with the warp tour. I know like, you know, like you, you guys have some tattoos and shit, but like, it seems like there was a moment where like, there was almost like a comically costumed version that was being put out in the early 2000s on some of the labels. Do you think by just being who you guys are, there was anything that might've kept you like, we got to work on your guys' image or no one ever said that to you guys. Nobody really ever said that to us. And that wasn't really anything that ever crossed our mind. Um, uh, yeah, the image thing I just thought was we just are who we are, and um, we kind of stuck to that. Um, a lot of bands did, 
hardcore bands from this area that were having success, some of the trust kill bands and whatnot got really, uh, you know, image conscious. And, uh, and I think that was stylized too. They changed their style of music and stuff like that. Um, so that, that can happen, but we just wanted to be the same band that we kind of always were. We didn't ever felt there was, we didn't ever felt that we were missing out on something by jumping into some new look or style that wasn't us. One of the things that in, in this conversation that's come to me is the thought process that like, obviously in the outset of the band, you had a deep hardcore legacy pedigree as far as like members who were already in some established OC bands, but you guys on your own managed to really build a name that is worldwide. You know, like it, it it's, there's times in people, uh, different hardcore bands where they start off with like, oh, this guy was in Carry Nation or Nope or an Answer and all this stuff. But as that member leaves, the band doesn't fill the shoes anymore. People go, oh, no, but you guys grew and grew and grew. And I think it has a lot to do with your work ethic. And also sonically, because you guys deviated from exactly what you just said by not trying to either play follow the leader or change the trend, but by really refining those melodic parts and keeping those fast tempos, it really builds all your songs up, you know, like it's a special formula. And I think that's really like why so many people resonate towards it, especially live. Yeah. We just always thought if we could write good songs and uh, play them well live, that that was what we really needed to worry about. And that was really the only thing that I think concerned us was, uh, let's just put out great records and cause that's, what's going to last. Um, songs trump pretty much anything. If you write a great song, um, it'll, it'll stand the test of time. You know, people will appreciate that music and have that as one of the songs that they like for a long, a long amount of time. So, um, that was really what we focused most of everything on was let's write great songs. Let's write memorable, memorable records and stuff that people can put on in like 15, 20 years and still want to come see us play. Not that we had that much foresight. It wasn't like in 20 years we want people to come see us, but it was just like good music and good songs pretty much trump everything. Let me ask you this. What is your favorite oldest Ignite song? And then what is your favorite newest Ignite song? Now we're talking about songs. Favorite oldest one was Turn from the Randy Johnson. Which you guys re-recorded. Which is why we re-recorded it. It I think it's one of the best Ignite songs ever. We we stopped playing it before 1997 because Craig joined in 97. He said he never played the song. Um, and I really wanted to bring that song back. Um, so we recorded it as the B-side on the Anna Capusti Anthem uh, single. And that song used to be like the highlight of the set for us um, in the early days. People would go nuts to that song. So... Yeah, I, I'm really excited that we re-record it and have the chance now to play it uh, live again. Um, it's been going over well, and uh, that's probably my favorite one from the early, early. I mean, the connection to the song Ash Return for me is special, too, because um, that was one of the first songs that we wrote in Ignite. Um, and I got to put, you know, such an you know, my fingerprint on it so much with the, the how that baseline uh, runs from the beginning. So uh, those, those two songs from the early, early days, I would say probably stand out the most to me. 
And I'm, then what were you? What did you ask about? Did you ask about another era? No, the newest song, like like the newest. Like, what is your newest favorite song, or like what is the song of like of the newest period that you is your favorite? Uh, probably bleeding. And again, um, having been like re- having written that song, and the connection to it, and remembering what I was thinking while I was writing it, and how I wanted that intro drum beat to sound, and uh, just going from that hit section in the intro, just building it into that fast uh, part and like just launching into that first chorus um, and ha- and then executing it and having it come off like way better than what I imagined um, is kind of special for me. So from, from like the two thousands era, probably bleeding is probably my favorite uh, song. When you, when you look back on ignite, is there anything that you learned from the band that you apply to like regular life? Is there anything that like was a, like a lesson that you're like, all right, I got it. Like, it was it about, was it really, was it just about the relationships? No, I think, you know, budgeting on tours, being smart with um, your finances, um, uh, knowing that the, the limitations of income for a hardcore band, um, you have to be smart with all that. And I think that's really carried over like into like my personal life um, to, you know, be frugal when you need to and save money when you need to. And, um, and I think that all stemmed from, you know, actually these, these early tours where it was like, you know, you're making a hundred dollars a night. You're somehow pulling off a U.S. tour, you know? Um, and I, there's a lot of value in that, I think, you know, and we're doing it all ourselves, you know, we're doing the whole thing ourselves, um, for the bulk of our career. So there's nobody really we're leaning on too much to to help us run anything, you know, we're learning how to do our own taxes. We're learning how to do our own accounting, our finances, our, all that stuff. So um, building credit for the band, all that stuff is important. And that all translates to, to your personal life. I think. I feel like the bands that have maintained a successful relationship with their European uh, output while still having that hardcore the entire thing in America the, exactly what you said plays into it. The Sycamore guys are very much the same way. Roger from Agnostic Front from the outset was very hands-on. And I think that's the difference between a hardcore band that can have longevity. You know, you, there's all these stories in the 80s of like, oh, well, we had so much, you know, we were getting this and that, and it, they just weren't paying attention to it. Exactly. You know, or like they thought it would never end, and they didn't, like, you know, they weren't not just having no sense of frugality, but also no, not really a sense of the, the the item lines and all the different stuff. And I know that there's a time in hard, uh, someone said it uh, actually on the show, Bill Wilson said, hardcore bands are not allowed to talk about making money where hip hop bands, their whole thing is talking about how much money they make. Right. And that's why hardcore bands were stupid about the money that they made. And that's why they didn't get ahead because they weren't thinking about it. I think that's a great lesson for people listening, especially in younger bands. I tell every younger band, don't get a booking agent until you can't control how much you guys are getting in. It's just too much for you to handle. I feel like being hands-on at the earliest stages and staying as long as you can before it gets to be too much is the best way to understand this, and I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, if you can self-manage yourself up to the point where you can't anymore and then you need somebody else to come in, you're going to have a lot more insight than, man, I hope this guy isn't ripping me off or I hope he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And we always said that once a manager, well, we didn't really have one too long, so but once an agent or a label 
once they start helping your band, that's not when it's time to rest. That's when it's time to actually work harder. And you can't count on like these people to get tours for you or push your record the right way. You should always be giving them input and insight of what you want and make a game plan, make a business plan um, and use them as tools, not as like crutches. Because as soon as you expect somebody who's working a nine to five job at a record label to have more passion for your band than you are, you're going to miss so many opportunities to grow. And uh, I think that's one of the biggest things is we've all, we always have been like hands, hands on with every aspect of this band. Even when we were signed to big labels and small labels, and we always wanted to know what the game plan was and what we were going to do this quarter and what's the plan next quarter. And uh, to be smart with every everything you can and be connected to it because otherwise it'll disappear. A guy that's your the guy at your record label who's helping you out, he's going to quit soon or he's going to get fired. He's going to go to the next label. Then he's going to be at the merch company and then he's going to be at the booking agencies. All these people are rotating around. Like you can't really count on anybody to be at these companies forever. So the more you can do for yourself basically is, is the better off you're going to be. I'm so fucking happy. You said that I have Mike Gitter on and we're going to do a Mike Gitter part two. But the thing that is so apparent is the, industry around punk and hardcore is a small knit group of labels they all know each other the people that work there exactly what said they shift hats they get fired to one thing they find a job in a different department in this place and so you know they're trying to make a living doing this but you know they're not obviously they want your band to do the best that they can but ultimately they have to think about how much longer before we get this label cut makes cuts I'm so glad you brought that up. We were the first person to really bring it up on the show. And that's an important thing that also happens is bands sign and they think, all right, we're on autopilot now. These guys got it made. <laughs> they, they'll get it figured out. And it, and it, I think, and I love what you said about continuing to work hard because that's when now you're not only paying for the stuff that the band has to pay for. Now you're putting someone else's, uh, you're filling someone else's pockets. So you gotta, you gotta put some shit out. Yeah. Make people work hard, you know, hold them accountable. You know, if you get a manager, you get an agent or you get a lawyer, make them accountable for, you know, them making money off of you. You know, it's, it's, they're working for you. You know, we're not working for them. It's, uh, we're, we're the artists out there writing the songs and touring and doing that stuff. So, you know, hold people accountable. I gotta tell you, I was, uh, I was wondering where this would go. And I was hoping we would get to stuff like this. Um, it's about two hours. I know we, we were talking about a little shorter time. I don't hold you up too much longer. Talk about the future of Ignite. Talk about a way we can get a hold of you, either directly or through the band. Brett, man, I love your band. Me and you have had a great relationship. I love this conversation. And I love the ability that we have when our guests come on and can actually influence younger bands. We have so many young kids that are in bands that listen every week. So it's always awesome when they hear someone who is not only a seasoned veteran of hardcore but also a successful person I actually talked to real shit and i just really appreciate you being honest man uh thanks man i mean yeah and likewise i've always enjoyed our conversations and how real everything is <laughs> you don't ever pull any punches you tell me exactly no. how it's gonna be it's it's <laughs> dude there's there's no bs so um we're just excited to get out and continue touring i mean we got you know the four guys in ignite before eli joined have about a hundred years of experience doing ignite so it's we we wanted to 
continue this and uh, we didn't take it lightly and we really enjoy being on the road together. We like touring. We like writing songs together. Um, we feel we have a great team right now and um, you know, we want to get out there and tour. We want to play shows. We want to write more songs. You know, the new record's been in the can for a few months now and we're already like talking right now about uh, getting going on the next record. You know, these guys love writing songs. They love working hard and it's just like, control what you can control, you know, like I said earlier, and this is what we can control. We can control the songs and we can control, um, for the most part, how much we want to tour, you know, obviously, as we all know, the weird stuff that's going on right now, but, um, we just want to be out there. We want to be touring. We want to set goals for ourselves and accomplish them and make another record soon. And, uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting time to be in Ignite right now. Nah, I love that positivity. Um, Shout out to uh, social medias and stuff like that. We always tag, and I always tell everybody who's listening, make sure you go to TIACpodcast.com because we have all the links on the website for every guest we ever had so you can go and check out the stuff that we're talking about. Yep, you can go to at Ignite Band on um, Instagram and in our bio, the link to our Linktree page has everything, our merch, our tour dates, everything there. So we try and keep it as simple, as streamlined as possible. Uh, I gotta, I gotta, I'll say one thing because I actually brought you guys up a uh, three weeks ago at a show. Now they have a giant iPod or iPad screen for the merch people who sell. Yes. And I was fucking my, I've seen it a couple of times, but I never stood near it. And I was like, wait, what? And they're like, Oh yeah. You just how's your inventory and all this stuff. And I'm like, listen, I remember ignite coming to the church and they, you guys had an iPhone and the slide. And it was the first time at the church. I seen someone. I'm like, dude, ignite is on some new shit. (laughs) So like, (laughs) So if you don't have that computer, brother, you gotta get you gotta get a, a, updated to the iPad system because no, I know I, I've been I've been seeing that it's 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 yeah it's a cool little uh, point of sale like item. We just we usually do the phone one with the square, but the uh, the whole little iPad thing is next level. Ah, uh, dude, I was like, man, I gotta I gotta I gotta check in with Brett to see if he knows about this fucking thing. She said, oh, it's great, it helps us with the inventory. And then I'm thinking, like, wait, you don't have to count your shirts anymore. Wait, what? Like, I remember years of selling merch. I was like, Jesus Christ. I know. Listen, yeah, it streamlines everything. It's awesome, dude. You're a hard worker. You've gone through ups and downs. There's so many people that wouldn't have counted their blessings the way they have. I I, I love your story. You're a fucking fantastic uh, songwriter. But more importantly, you have the fucking mindset to get through this. And that's really where Ignite has shined and continues to shine. So I just appreciate your time. I appreciate the uh, the fact that people are going to listen to it and get a lot of influence out of this. And just thank you for your time, man. Dude, thank you for what you do and giving us this platform to come and tell our stories, promote our stuff, push our stuff, um, the, show, the shows and the involvement in the scene that you do is exceptional. And that, I mean... I don't know if you get thanked enough for that, but it's, it's, I think it's a critical part of what we do in our world. But uh, I just want to let you know that, yeah, I appreciate everything you do as well. Nah, man. And I look forward to the day we finally get ignited this hardcore. That's like a dream set. <laughs> I know. We, we've been talking about it forever. Yeah, I know. Dude, thank you so much, man. You're the best. And uh, make sure to check out TIAT Podcast so you can get it, um, all the links to ignite and support these guys. And if you guys haven't checked out the new singer, Eli, in the videos, He's incredible, man. And that song, Turn, they've, it's Turn, they added uh, 21 to it on the end. I'm telling you, it's a fucking banger. And just thank you again, Brett. Awesome. Have a good one, Jeff. Like I said, if you can't 
take something as a band, whether you've been a band for five minutes, five weeks, five months, five years, there, there's no doubt that Ignite many different times in decades have been on the top of their game. Literally toured the world so many times, world famous, hardcore punk, but still reeled in the reality of how to run a band sensible. There's so many like just lessons in this. You know, um, I'm really excited for what happens with Ignite with Eli being in the band. I think post-pandemic, it'll give the band a little bit more versatility and be able to play more often. And I'm just really excited for the next chapter of Ignite. Anyone of you who haven't really got to hit to them, I mean, all the records are great. Start at the beginning with Scarred for Life, Rolling to Call, My Brothers. I heard a funny story about Ignite coming through in New York in the mid-90s and call, they did call my brothers and Freddie Madball was in the pit destroying people. So I want you to think about that. If, if it's good enough for Freddie Madball to be out there smashing people and breaking noses, it's good enough for you to rock out. Brett, thank you for being on the show. You know, um, I'm, I usually reiterate the different things that I said in the beginning of the show. I'm not going to do that. I just wanted to let you know that we have another podcast. It's called The Rule of Three featuring myself, also, OG Jeff Gavin of the Broadsheet Breakdown. Broadsheet Breakdown is one of the coolest podcasts out there. OG, my boy Vinny Paz, Pablo from Delco, I'm telling you. If you just want to hear three guys, and um, obviously Xavier from uh, Jeff's son, totally forgot, as the new addition to Broad Street. I mean, they've got little skits. They've got games they play. It's a good listen. If you're at work and you need to kill three or four hours and it's lighthearted, but then they go into topics about music, politics, wrestling. They're hard on wrestling. If you listen, if you like wrestling, man, go. they go deep. They know their shit. It's a fucking great podcast. And the king himself, Richie Mancuso. Post-America podcast is the podcast that Richie started. I was a guest many times. Richie's obviously been on the show multiple times. He's also in Wisdom and Chains, Z9, Fast Break Records, Out to Win, Crutch, I mean, that's the reason why he's a godfather of Pennsylvania. But the three of us together are doing Rule of Three podcast. You can check that out at Rule of Three, spelled T-H-R-E-E-H-X-C dot Podbean. That's the server where we keep our episodes. We're about seven in. We're releasing more. Thanks, everybody, for reaching out. Thanks, everybody, for checking out the other podcasts. Also, check out their podcast. It's fucking great. I love what those guys do. Again, great Fucking episode from 185 South just came out with Dave from Suicide File. There's just a lot of great podcasts coming out. Make sure you're supporting podcasts. Make sure you're supporting bands. Um, and again, everyone's got a little bit of darkness in them. Things aren't going well. I'm not doing the best. These kind of things that I'm doing right now, 20 minutes before I have to get showered, before I have to go to jujitsu, recording so I can make things happen. It's these outlets. It's these things that we have. This way that we have these little projects and hardcore, these things to do, it just keeps our mind off of some of the stuff that we have no control of in our real life. If you're hurting, reach out to any of us. There's been far too many people passing away. Oh, shit. Definitely should mention that Mark from Fuming Mouth, he is dealing with leukemia. I'm going to post a GoFundMe. We posted on this hardcore, Philly hardcore shows, and my personal Instagram. But make sure to check that out. Mark is an absolute terror on stage. Fuming Mouth fucking killed it a year ago, or two years ago, rather, at the First Unitarian Church. And it's a horrible situation that he ended up with leukemia, and we hope nothing but the best for him. So I have a GoFundMe link up for that. 
Okay, thank you. See you at Keystone Jam, motherfuckers. Otherwise, take care, and you'll hear from me next week. Bye-bye.